1: Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash offer.
0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now
1: look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation.
0: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar.
1: And in For Justice this week, I'm Griffin Neiman. Hi, Duke.
0: Who's the cowboy?
1: Duke meet Woody. Woody meet...
0: Duke Kaboom,
1: Canada's greatest stuntman. Oh, yeah.
0: And that's when, at long last, the Toy Story and John Wick franchises were united.
1: These are both entries where the characters are forced to uh, answer for why they want to remain alive. (laughs) That's it. That clip, of
0: course, from Toy Story 4, which hits theaters this weekend, Keanu Reeves as Duke Kaboom with Annie Potts' Bo Peep and Tom Hanks' Woody. This week on the show... Toy Story Superfan Griffin joins me for a review of the latest entry in the beloved franchise and our top five Toy Story scenes. We might just fit in some more John Wick talk. You never know. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting and welcome to my guest host this week in for Josh Larson, the vacationing Josh Larson, is Griffin Newman, his first time on the show. Griffin, it's so great to have you.
1: Uh, Thank you. It's such an honor and a privilege. I'm a a big fan, a longtime listener, and we met uh, some years ago at a New York uh, Film Spotting meetup.
0: That's absolutely uh, true.
1: Which I never thought uh, over those beers that I would be here years later uh, Skyping in. (laughs) uh and and virtually stealing uh, josh's seat
0: yeah well i hope day. i hope we both have a good time i know we will and hopefully it'll happen again griffin of course you are an actor probably best known for your recent work as arthur everest on the tick the superhero comedy that alas was on amazon i've been following was. your twitter feed and, yeah. and i'm guessing it's still available there it's for just for not, the time being, yeah, at least the they have being. not
1: told us that they plan to remove it. But who knows? Right. Uh, you know, Amazon is the almighty master and they can do whatever they please. Um, but, yeah, it is is—it is all still visible there. And even though they've now announced, unfortunately, that the show is not going forward, uh, I, I do want to encourage people to watch it because we made 22 episodes that I'm – very, very proud of.
0: Yeah. And at the time we met at that bar in New York City, Mm -hmm. you had just finished shooting for Martin Scorsese. You were on HBO's show Vinyl for a while. And you've basically been acting since you were a kid, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I was essentially a failed child actor. I got two jobs in high school. One of them I was cut out of, which was a uh, mockumentary about M. Night Shyamalan that M. Night Shyamalan produced Uh, to try to build up the mythology around himself
0: Hmm.
1: uh, in the early 2000s when uh, M. Night Shyamalan was testing everyone's patience, And then (laughs) there was one movie I actually uh, made it into. Um, But then I went to uh, uh, film school for one semester. I went to CalArts, which is the alma mater of, like, all the Pixar guys. And I mostly went there because uh, I had spent my childhood reading so many making of Pixar books that it seemed like the place to go. Hmm. Um, and I dropped that up for one semester to try to really, really make a go of acting and,
0: uh, and such as a career. Yeah. And I think we'll get to a little bit more on one of those Pixar books in a moment. We will also... Oh, yeah talk more about your role as co-host of the Blank Check podcast. And as we've said, you're a Toy Story fanatic, and we'll cover your bona fides, I think, on that front in a moment as well. You're going to definitely get a forum to showcase your fanaticism when we share our top five Toy Story scenes later. But first, all hail Forky. (laughs) Everyone, Bonnie made a friend in class. Oh, she's already making friends. No, no, she literally made a new friend. I want you to meet Forky! Uh, Hi. Come on. Hi! Ah. He's a spork. Yes, yeah, I know. Forky is the most important toy to Bonnie right now. We all have to make sure nothing happens to him. Woody, we have a situation. I am not a toy. I was made for soup, salad, maybe chili, and then the trash. Freedom! Buzz, we've got to
1: get Forky. Affirmative.
0: am I alive? You're Bonnie's toy. You are going to help create happy memories that will last for the rest of her life. Uh Huh? What? Oh, Griffin, I wasn't fully aware of your Toy Story obsession until I came across an AV Club feature a couple months ago. 11 questions. Pretty simple concept. They ask interesting people 11 interesting questions. One of those questions was, what possession can you not Get rid of, and your answer to that question, Griffin, was
1: uh, it was a making of coffee table book released at the time of the first Toy Story. Yeah, a very a very large unwieldy book
0: that you apparently referenced all the time.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still have it, and I guess the first Toy Story came out when I was uh, six, uh, and this I demanded my parents got this for me. I think they just thought it was a an oversized picture book, but it was like a very dense. Uh, production pipeline of a computer animated film book that I would read obsessively to my night myself every night before I went to sleep. Mm -hmm. Now, quite profoundly, you said in the piece, it
0: symbolizes this moment where I started going so deep on how things got made and it crystallized in my mind that I like wanted to do that. I wanted to be the person who made stuff in some way or at least contributed to the process of making stuff. That's a powerful attachment. To a book. And the interviewer astutely noted the connection between that attachment and the Toy Story franchise as a whole, preoccupied as it is with how tough it is to part with things from our past that were Mm -hmm. so important to us. That dialogue naturally prompted some follow up questions about Toy Story 4. Again, this is a couple months ago, which finds Woody and Buzz and friends going on a road trip with Bonnie and Forky, a funky looking spork Bonnie created at kindergarten orientation. Kid is God in the Toy Story universe is a basic theory I subscribe to that will likely come up again over the course of this show. And boy, does it support said theory that Bonnie can slap on a couple googly eyes, add some tongue depressor to feet, and pipe cleaner arms, and all of a sudden, an eating utensil is sentient. Now, you were initially resistant to the idea of a fourth installment. In your words, they went through multiple directors, including John Lasseter, who has now become the disgraced expat of Pixar. And they went through so many writers that it just seemed like the movie was a disaster in the making. But the trailer, which showed us Forky, who sees himself as trash, not a toy, and the return of Woody's sweetheart, Bo Peep, who was abandoned but found a way to embrace her freedom... Gave you reason to be hopeful. In fact, you devised and shared a theory of your own around what Toy Story 4 could be. And I love your predicted existential analogy. You said, That it's essentially a movie about people who are obsessed with their career and can't be alone with their own thoughts and learning how to enjoy retirement. They're empty nesters who can't center their life around their family and their children and have to figure out who they are. So if that's what the movie is, I'm going to love it, you said. And if it's just a retread, then I'm going to be the angriest person in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Now, having seen the movie just last night, my guess is. You're the happiest person in the world. I I am incredibly happy. And because every movie is so good, it's genuinely fun and enlightening to hear how people rank the films of the series. Where does Toy Story 4 place on your
1: list? My ranking right now, and I've only seen four once. I saw it last week, so I've had a little more time to process it. But it's at a disadvantage against all the other films that I have seen tens and tens of times, uh, most likely. Uh, Right now, my ranking, I think, would be two, one, four, three. Um, but wow. they're pretty tight. Yeah.
0: We're going to come to blows over this considering where I have really? three ranked, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Yeah. I, I want to hear more about why you, you rate four ahead of it.
1: Uh, ahead of three. Sure. Um, I, I think because, uh, I, I like, and this is what I was hoping for. Um, you know, as you said, there was all this sort of like. Uh, sort of chaos behind the scenes making this fourth installment and the mere announcement of it seemed sacrilegious to most people because everyone kind of agreed that three ended so well. Um, But they kept on saying sort of uh, in very vague terms, like we have a kernel of an idea that we think is so good that we have to do something with it. Mm -hmm. And then they would never really talk about what that idea was. The only thing they'd say was that Bo Peep was back. Um, and the movie kept on getting pushed back and going through new writers, directors and all, as you said, and I was just a hundred percent prepared, uh, for, uh, a movie that didn't have a reason to exist other than the fact that, uh, merchandise was already in production. Um, but the forky thing opened up the box of, oh, are they actually going to, uh, make a movie that digs into some of the more existential questions about this franchise? Because I think the Toy Story movies have always been very existential in that they are about these characters trying to come to terms with their place in the world, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. It's always about their status, their relationship to someone else, their ranking, uh, their geographical location, you know, any of these things. Um, but the the sort of messiness of, wait, so what are the rules of their sentience? Mm-hmm. How do they live? How do they come alive? <laughs> All this sort of stuff. Uh, was always kind of the third rail of if you start to tackle this stuff, is it going to strangle the magic out of it? If you start to overexplain it, are you going to get a midichlorian situation <laughs> on your hands? Right. But Forky, from the moment he was revealed, seemed to me like a really good avenue to pursue uh, th- these questions of, of what their entire uh, raison d'etre really is as toys. And especially because Woody has always been so methodical about this idea of you're in service of a kid. You know, the, the idea of the kid as a god, you know, if they're not a merciless god, they're at least a kind of um, indifferent god. You sure. know, it's this weird relationship between the kids and the toys where the kids love the toys so much but have no awareness of the fact that the toys have these inner lives. And uh, so it is kind of a one-way relationship in a lot of ways. For Woody sure. Woody will wax poetic about what it means, you know, and how good you feel for helping a kid and all of that. Um, But there is something kind of selfless about how much you're giving uh, of yourself to some sort of greater power. And then the second thing that clicked into place for me was when they revealed the first images of Bo Peep and she looks radically different in this movie. Um, And the thing they'd always said was, oh, it's going to be, you know, uh, Woody relocates Bo Peep, who he hasn't seen forever, and she's been in an antique shop. And that sounded like an incredibly boring movie to mm-hmm. me. Um, but the second it became clear, oh, she has been living on her own. She is someone who has created a new pipeline for how to be a toy uh, that is completely unbeholden to any owner uh, and is just about sort of living for yourself and helping others uh, without needing that sort of validation. Uh, those two pieces seemed really exciting to me. And sure. I, I feel like they did with those pieces uh, what I wanted out of this Film and I think three is obviously working really hard to give you a real sense of emotional catharsis and finality. I cannot make it through the last twenty minutes of three without crying. I've tried many times. <laughs> it's it's my equivalent of like a saltine challenge where I'll put it on and yeah. see if I can make it through without tearing up. And I I cannot. And this movie is ne- less um, sort of uh, I, I don't know violently emotional, but I think it's quietly more profound. And I think the ending it gives Woody, if you're really viewing Woody as the protagonist of these films, is a much more satisfying conclusion. Three is a really good ending to the narrative of Andy and these toys as a group. Yeah. But if you pull back and look at four – in relation to the first three, it's it's kind of everything they've set up for Woody in the first three movies coming to roost in sure. a way that I found really, really affecting.
0: Yeah, I did as well. And I think we'll probably get into that more when we actually dive into spoiler territory because mm-hmm. I think there's some fruitful discussion there to be had and some disagreement to be had with my co-host who isn't here based on... Well, his... Josh is
1: incredibly wrong. He's I know.
0: He's 100% wrong about the ending. I-, I love that we have two voices here that, that speak the truth on this subject, but we will get to that uh, later. I think... We're We're going to articulate a lot of the same stuff, including a lot of the same things we liked about this film, and yet I rank it at the bottom. And that really isn't a reflection on how much I enjoyed the film or how rewarding I ultimately found it. I think it just reflects how great this series really is. I probably should acknowledge, though, how how old does it make me, though, that my—not my favorite character in 4, but the character I had the strongest emotional attachment to— was bonnie's dad who just wants to leave the rv park and have a peaceful drive and couldn't get it that was that was the character i most related to
1: oh totally i also find it very funny that the toy story franchise has been completely lacking in fathers up until this point sure uh i mean famously andy is a it lives in a single parent household because pixar by their own admission couldn't afford to make a dad uh in the first two movies sure and uh, in three, we see Bonnie's mom a lot, but you don't see your father. And they finally introduce a father. And he is the most frazzled. Yes. <laughs> poorly. Yes. Oh, man. Organized.
0: I, just, I just kept thinking yeah. about that day he had planned and how it got away from him and the nightmare of that. But, but whatever. Uh, Sam. Our producer on, I think it was maybe Saturday night, put out a poll on Twitter that we had a lot of respondents to, which was to rank the series. And that really was prompted by me going into our show Slack and saying after finally finishing, after completing three that night, and that means over four days, I think I had rewatched the first three movies. For me, it was hands down reverse order 321 were my favorite. So we used that as a prompt to see what uh, listeners out there on Twitter thought. And it was pretty close. Not a clear winner here necessarily, but my pick 321 only got 19%. Just edging out with 20% was the opposite of that, 123 in order. 27% had 213 obviously here just ranking the trilogy. 34% said other. The winner was other. So I'm imagining do you feel the same way that that would then mean most people think that the right order is probably two, three one
1: yeah or or three, one,
0: two, yeah, I guess, but I think I think most people feel like two is the best film, and even in the back of my mind that 's how I thought I would feel in rewatching the films in order for me. I felt like, appropriately, the series-like adulthood itself gets progressively more complex and layered and and ultimately rewarding. And I do think we get that element in 4 as well. I think you are absolutely right. Now, I know that there are the... Toy Story 3 deniers out there who point to its redundancy, the fact that it maybe recycles some elements from two. For sure, when I saw Lotso appear on screen for the first time re-watching him and he seems so nice and gentle, but you know the prospector started the same way. So you know he immediately can't be trusted. And then there's elements in Lotso's story that mirror Jesse's abandonment as well. So I definitely get it. But All four films, when you boil them down, involve the toys being put in peril and having to escape a villain and get back home. On some level, they all four are about that. And it's the nuances and the details that really matter. And for me, three just happens to to hit the most notes. And I I think we'll maybe get to some of those notes and those reasons why when we get into the top five. But you're absolutely right that serving a kid, serving his kid was what fundamentally drove Woody throughout this entire series, but how he did it always changed, always Mm -hmm. evolved. How he had to navigate it, coming to terms with not being the favorite, coming to terms with potentially being lost, with being abandoned, with being with a new kid. And you're 100% right. I don't know that I ever fully appreciated when I watched these films originally how existential they truly are, how the central metaphor is this existential dilemma we all face, the toys standing in for us. We all have a fear of of are we going to be happy? Are we going to be loved? Are we are we going to find love and then be replaced or ignored or abandoned? And as you say then, absolutely, of eventually realizing that maybe, you know, you have to define your own happiness and i think that goes back to the religious idea too the series has always been religious and i won't digress into the ten commandments reading of toy (laughs) story three just yet but it is absolutely there and uh, i think here it adds this element with forky where just as woody has to kind of redefine himself and rethink what he was ostensibly created to do and figure out what his use is Forky, of course, tests that because he he just his very nature defies that that question, those definitions and those boundaries.
1: Yeah. I mean, aside from Forky being a great character and my early pick for best supporting actor of next year, <laughs> uh, not Tony Hale, but Forky, I propose, should win the Oscar. Sure. Um, Forky is also just an incredible dramatic device for this movie, because for the first time, Woody has to try to explain his entire world belief to another character And the more he tries to verbalize it, the more he has to question what it is that he's actually believing in, you know, Mm -hmm. especially since because I I think the two smart uh, things this movie does at the very beginning, it sets its themes out really nicely. But you have this sort of uh, cold open. That's a flashback to uh, in between two and three, which is uh, the night that that Bo Peep uh, gets given away. And um, she suggests that would jump in the box with her and come with her because they could be together. And uh, he gets scared. He hears Andy's voice and he's afraid to do something other than what he's been told is his, uh, his sort of point in life yes. uh, to serve this kid. And he, he lets her go. And then you have um, this scene of uh, now post three, uh, the new lay of the land in Bonnie's room where uh, Woody is no longer the lead character. Bonnie just does not consider Woody to be the hero of her playroom. Right. Uh, Which makes perfect sense. This is a different kid. Yes. They're not going to interpret the same mythology uh, that Andy had for these toys. Um, And so it calls into question for Woody, like, you know, All these sort of sliding doors opportunities, Uh, you know, Bonnie seemed like this opportunity for him to just uh, reset, you know, like it was a clean reincarnation to be able to live the same life over again. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in fact, he's kind of now having to face the fact that he can't go home again, that Bonnie isn't Andy, and that uh, maybe he doesn't get the same sort of satisfaction in this new bedroom that he did in the old one. Uh, saying in the bedroom makes it sound sexual, which is one thing (laughs) the Toy Story usually strays away from, but I was surprised by how successfully they make the relationship between uh, Woody and Bo feel genuinely romantic because Bo was a very, very tertiary character in the first two. She's really just part of the gang, you know? I mean, she never leaves the bedroom, uh, and she mostly exists to just be his sort of girlfriend love interest and offer some words of uh, support. And I think they do a really good job in this film, uh, A, deepening the character... Uh, jumping on the things that were already there and digging deeper into them rather than just completely changing her and making her someone different than she's been before. Um, mm-hmm. But really adding a lot of uh, uh, dimensionality. Um, and, and you know, the the changes in the character are informed by the nine years that we haven't seen her in between. Yes. The sort of implied history of what's been going on with her. Um, but you do, uh, feel genuine like tension between the two of them. I mean, uh, uh, Karen Han, uh, my friend and uh, critic at uh, polygon, uh, was at the same screen as me and said, I've never wanted to see two action figures kiss more in my life. (laughs) Yes. And you're really kind of leaning forward in your seat, hoping that he doesn't blow it again, you know?
0: No, I agree with that. And I think that as, as much as that's true, I also think that it's such it would be such a defiance of everything we have sort of felt and and thought we known thought we have known about Woody. And we'll get into this more in spoilers here in a second. But for him to embrace that romantic side, I think we're always aware. Part of the tension is that we're aware of what it would mean for him to actually take that step, for him to to embrace her fully in that way, how it would be such a, a stark shift uh, for Woody that that we're probably even a little bit afraid for him in that moment as much as we would like to actually see that we'd like to see that joy and that that romance between them so that's absolutely there and I also like the fact that it's touched on in Toy Story 3 it may be one line but I think I just came across this today too somewhere I didn't have a chance to read it but that Andrew Stanton one of the co-writers here was working on this back when Toy Story Three was in production, so it, it, yeah, it, 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 by all accounts, yeah, yeah. It, it then informs the fact that we do get that line where they acknowledge that. Bo isn't with us anymore that we you know we're all still together well we d- we did lose Bo and the way Woody says that that kind of wistfulness there is that that an, that hint of longing there that suggests yeah. there there's a story that deserves to be told and in four we got it
1: yeah well and, and I think it comes to this root of uh, you know not that uh, having a romantic relationship is selfish but Woody is a character who has been serving you know uh, sort of single-mindedly at the feet of uh, whoever the god figure is, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's Andy or Bonnie or, or whomever. Um, and even when he's considered other paths, like being at uh, Side Daycare or going to the the Toy Museum and Toy Story 2, it's always about, am I going to mean something to a kid? Is there a kid for me to serve that I can make happy? Um, and Bo, I think, as you said, you know, you worry about Woody uh, following her. It's because you kind of don't know if he'll ever be able to give himself fully into something for himself if that makes any sense you know this is a relationship that's just about someone allowing himself to enjoy something uh to be enjoyed by someone else uh in a way that isn't Sort of I don't know grappling at some larger idea of service Mm -hmm. Um, and and that's what's really interesting to me about uh, uh, Bo coming back into this. I mean in that scene you're talking about in three they're running down sort of all the characters they've lost in between movies and he's sort of rattling them all off until Rex says and Bo. Yes. And he does have that pause and that lump in his throat. That, that does imply, as you said, that there was a missed opportunity there. There's some regret he has there, you know. Um, and, and I think this movie, you know, uh, uh, not to dive fully into spoiler territory yet, but, it, you know, in staunch disagreement with Mr. Larson, with all due respect, I think that's why this movie earns its ending, mm-hmm. because it's not just about what Bo means to Woody. It's also about what she represents, in terms of a different life That's he could it. have.
0: yeah, no, And I, I
1: think this movie fully sells the idea of that life, which she is a part of.
0: Yes, we agree on that, and we will definitely get into a little bit more detail about that. But before we do, are there any other aspects about the movie you absolutely loved, and are there
1: any disappointments? I, I have one major disappointment with the film and one minor disappointment. Uh, I, we've already talked about it a bit, but Forky is uh, incredible in this film. Uh, from, I mean, the voice performance, the writing, the animation, it's just a character that immediately works and feels very different than anything we've seen in any of these films. And a thing I was not prepared for is you actually, over the course of the movie, watch him sort of uh, develop sentience. When he first comes to life, he can only say one word right. and he barely can move. And there's something kind of fascinating about watching the equivalent of a baby toy, uh, you know, because he is this this homemade item. That is given life just because a kid considers uh, him to be a toy, which, you know, gets into all these murky questions of this movie of, you know, uh, I, I guess life is gained when someone projects it upon you, um, which is an interesting thing to consider. Yes. And uh, there is a, a musical number in this film, not a, a traditional song and dance musical number, but there is a Randy Newman song in the film, which despite Randy Newman being a big part of these films, uh, there has not been a Randy Newman song sung by him. Uh, played within the film since the first one. Okay. In two, you have Sarah McLaughlin singing his song. Yes. And in three, it's in the end credits. Um, so it felt like a nice callback to one. Um, and you have this montage of uh, Forky trying over and over again to throw himself in the trash uh, because he believes that that's where he belongs. He is like compulsively drawn to the trash that I think is is maybe the funniest thing in any of these movies. Just in the way it escalates, the relentlessness of three minutes of it over and over and over <laughs> again. Um, but the the Forky arc, his sort of journey of self-discovery and accepting being a toy, mostly sort of resolves itself by the end of the first act. And then the movie becomes more about Woody and Bo running off of what Forky has made him question. Mm-hmm. Um, and Woody's I think, very persuasive, though, Griffin. Woody's very persuasive. It's a good argument. But I also feel like... Uh, there's so much more fun to be had with Forky that I would have liked to have seen him be on the fence for a little bit longer. You have the whole midsection of the movie. Uh, Forky is with Gabby Gabby, who's the villain of this film. Christina Hendricks playing a antique, uh, polstering doll with a broken voice box, um, who desperately wants to, in this weird bit of like Cronenbergian body horror, uh, steal Woody's voice box so that she can be complete again. Um, and she is much like Woody, constantly proselytizing uh, of the uh, the purity, the simplicity, the overarching need to uh, mean something to a kid and to have uh, a kid mean something to you. And I feel like it would have been nice if Woody didn't completely convince Forky and Gabby Gabby had to pick up that torch a little bit. Sure. Although I will say, you know, a thing I love about your show Uh, One of the main reasons I'm a big film spotting fan is I feel like you guys review what the movie is and not what it isn't. Uh, So I don't want to do too much of how I would have rewritten the movie. The only other thing that kind of irked me in the film is um, I I feel it does give short shrift to all the other sort of classic characters Mm -hmm. in the film. Um, I mean this really is a Woody movie. And then uh, Bo and Forky sort of alongside him. Buzz ends up joining Woody for a lot of the adventure, but for most of the movie, the main core group of the classic toys and even the the Bonnie's Bonnie's toys that are introduced in three are just kind of in an RV waiting for everyone to get back. Yeah, no, you're absolutely um, right. They're stuck. Yeah, they're a little stuck, and uh, you know, it's a short film. Uh, it's good that it's short. I like that these films are efficient. I maybe would have appreciated 10 minutes being able to uh, uh, material distributed throughout the film where we're able to give us some more moments with those characters.
0: Yeah. So, uh, because they do make the franchise. So far, except in the intro, we haven't touched on, you know, the internet's favorite person and mine, Keanu Reeves, as Duke Kaboom, yes. which I think was a great addition. Had a lot of fun with his character. And I want to go back. I want to know what you think about Duke Kaboom, but also you mentioned Gabby Gabby. And I think one of the real strengths of the series. And this may even come up a little bit at the at the end during the top five, even as you sort of rethink Sid a little bit, potentially, from the first mm-hmm. movie, is how how layered all of these villains have been. I mean Lotso is is abominable and just, you know, repugnant in a lot of ways, but The movie always gives these characters their backstory. It makes you empathize with them, even as you hate some of their actions. And I think you see that as well with Gabby Gabby. And they found a way to make her her own unique type of villain completely separate from what we'd seen before.
1: Yeah, I I saw so many people. I mean, as you said, these films are very cyclical. They repeat themes and they repeat uh, sort of motions. There's always a rescue. Um, but after Prospector and, uh, Lotto were so similar, uh, I think most people were worried that they were going to do a similar kind of fake out thing in four and Gabby Gabby is an entirely different type of villain. Um, but the thing that really made her for me is the scene where you expect the movie is building up to her peak moment of villainy. It in fact is her making a very reasonable plea to Woody. Yeah. I mean, she really kind of lays out her thinking and isn't aggressive, you know? She's scary. She's an innately scary character and she's, uh, you know, functioning out of aggressive self-interest and, uh, you know, that has manifested into, uh, you know, uh, a little bit of psychosis perhaps. (laughs) Um, But she's not someone who thinks of herself as a villain and she is not duplicitous in the way that Lotso or uh, uh, Stinky Pete were. Um, And Sid is a fascinating villain because rewatching the the movie in anticipation of this episode, uh, there is no reason for Sid to think he's doing anything wrong. No. Until the moment where Woody speaks to him, the only time that happens, you know, directly in any of these films, uh, he's just kind of a creative kid. Yes. I mean, I think all the Pixar people always say that they relate to Sid because that's who they were. They were making their own weird toys and acting out their own weird scenes, you know, interrogations and this and that. I mean, he's he's a he's an artist by all accounts. Absolutely. But Gabby Gabby is very nuanced and I think comes at everything from from different angles than we've seen before. And Duke Boom is a great example as well. I mean, there's a thing I love about these films, and I obviously love these films tremendously, but um, the elasticity of them and that sometimes they are functioning as these sort of uh, metaphors, you know, for the stages of life and our own existential crises. But sometimes it, it is literally just about what would it be like if you were a toy? And the characters are dealing with things that only apply to the life of a toy. And uh, Duke Kaboom is a great example of that because this is a character whose tragic backstory is he can't live up to the commercial, um, which is such a funny bit. Yeah. And is a great example of there just being so much juice in this world. You know, I don't necessarily want there to be a fifth film. Uh, But it goes to show you that just when you think they've run out of ideas, there's so many different corners you can explore of the weird complexes that a toy could have. Mm -hmm. Um, And Keanu is just uh, – I I was saying to my girlfriend recently, he's a guy who has somehow learned to simplify his, uh, his craft to everything he's great at and somehow avoid all of the weaknesses he had perhaps in the early 90s. And this is a character that doesn't feel like any other kind of Reeves character you've ever seen before, but plays into all of his strengths. Yeah. Let's dive in then. Let's really kick
0: a man when he's down. My co-host Josh Larson, not here to defend himself, but first we'll give people a little bit of distance here as we are going to get into spoiler territory. We're going to really talk about the ending of the film. Toy Story 4 is out now in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our thoughts, email us. Feedback at filmspotting.net. And now we'll queue up a scene from the movie and we'll come back and we'll talk about the ending. Don't let Woody leave. Uh, Kids lose their toys every day. I was made to help a child. I don't remember it being this hard. Woody, somebody's whispering in your ear. Everything's going to be okay. So we're back to talk about the ending of the film and Woody's final choice. And we've both kind of been on record about how we overall feel about this in contrast to Josh, who we know his feelings because he wrote about the film on his website, larsononfilm.com. We'll also link to that in our show notes at filmspotting.net. And I hadn't read the review, avoided everything. I hadn't even seen a trailer for this movie before oh, wow. I went in, actually. So I was I was pretty clueless. And the... Only thing I knew about it was this happens all the time. I'll see just little blurbs, of course, that come up on Twitter or on Letterboxd. And Josh said that he liked the film overall, and he did overall give it a positive rating. But he said that Woody deserved better than that ending. So you can imagine, Griffin, I'm watching the entire film with that in mind. I'm thinking (laughs) about the ending. I'm thinking about what happens to Woody. And knowing that he felt like Woody deserved better... I could only imagine one of two things. One is that something just so egregious had to happen to Woody that it seemed unthinkably inconsistent or unearned. And I waited through the end of the film. I watched all the credits. I kept waiting for some scene to happen. Surely something is going to jump out to me that Josh is latching onto here. And that never really happened. So the other option was maybe an issue of the critic, in this case, struggling with the thought (laughs) of Woody changing, of Woody mm-hmm. evolving. And I think it it does turn out to be the latter. Now, in his review, he talks about how he doesn't really love how Bo Peep is used and that it turns into this kind of embrace of traditional romance. So that essentially, at the end of the film, when Woody does, he's he has the chance to, to leave her and go back with his friends and finally get in the RV and go with Bonnie. Instead, he chooses to go back. For Josh, that was a... a an embrace of traditional romance and didn't really work. And it was also not in keeping with Woody's character, who, as Josh says, was never meant for the wild, wild west, his places of the ranch, more specifically the corral, where lost toys could be gathered and given purpose and community. So we saw a very different ending in some ways than Josh.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think Josh viewing it just as an embrace of romance is, is a simplification of what's going on here. I mean, there's um, the scene in Toy Story one when they are left at the gas station and it's sort of the moment where the movie uh, literally kind of zooms out. To how small they are in this world You know they cut to this expansive wide Shot where they're the size of ants And you realize how terrifying their existence Is mm-hmm. and what he says to buzz Something along the lines of don't you understand We're lost toys now that's the worst thing a toy Can be and um, I think you know a thing I like about these movies is they're not incredibly plot-driven. The plot is usually rescuing some toy from somewhere. Um, they're really about what new existential challenges or questions can the characters face. How can they re-evaluate uh, what their role is in life and what who they want to be and what they want to do and all these sorts of things. They really are these kind of internal journeys that all the characters uh, face. And this is the question that Woody has been uh, – Asking for four movies now, is there anything worse than being a lost toy? In his mind, no, which is why he's willing to uh, put himself into grave danger in order to rescue a toy over and over again in this franchise, because he can think of no crueler fate. And so I think it is incredibly earned that the film, uh, you know, and the series, if this is in fact the end, which I think it should be, but also, you know, I thought that after three, so uh, Pixar certainly capable of proving me wrong again. Um, but that the film, uh, you know, the final growth this character has is to accept that his greatest fear is perhaps not that scary and to go into the unknown and to embrace it. Yeah, um, I, I think it's perfectly set up by the movie and I think it's perfectly set up by the franchise. And I, as I said, I don't think it's just that he's leaving everyone behind because his love for Bo is so overpowering. It's also the life that he's seen Bo live and how much happier Bo is than him. I mean, Woody has spent four movies uh, essentially always on the brink of a nervous breakdown. You know, Tom Hanks always says how exhausted he is when he records this character because it's all these scenes of him going, guys, guys, come on, what are we doing here? You know, it's always that sort of (laughs) panic and putting himself into the middle of the road and running after things, trying not to get crushed or burned alive in the name of coming back to a kid who will never know how much work he put into staying in that bedroom. Mm -hmm. And... Bo is, uh, you know, living a life with as much excitement and as much danger, but uh, a life where only she decides her own value and her self-worth. I think that's what he really falls in love with.
0: No, I I agree completely. And I think that if the question is, does would he make that decision at the end to go with Bo because of his romantic feelings or is it because of something else that you've alluded to, something else that is calling him? And the movie sets up this idea of an inner voice that's just telling you. Right. And even I think you mentioned the scene that we get in the in the flashback, right? It's at the beginning of the film where he almost gets in the box with her. We see yeah, that his voice, it. right, is telling him even in that moment to consider it, and he ultimately subjugates that and doesn't listen and goes on with that life of faith and supporting his God, in this case, yeah. the kid. That's what he does, but that call is there. And so for me, is it about that call, which she helps represent and which she's a part of, and that he has feelings for her? Sure, that's all there, but it's not about his desires to be with her necessarily it's more to do with his acknowledgement finally and his acceptance that there there is this new adventure out there for him and that he can actually take that step it's pretty bold what this movie says at the end of it that he he can recognize and he does that he isn't actually beholden to anyone i think for all that to work it still does have to be true to woody and and make sense within the context of this movie, too, the series and this movie. And for me, they do pull it off. And I think you mentioned a few of these things, but I want to run through some of the things I jotted down. We recognize right away that already he's been relegated to the closet. You touched on this, right, that he has less mm-hmm. of a direct role in in Bonnie's life. They've established with that great moment where the badge is taken off him and given to Jesse that she's mm-hmm. really the new sheriff. And at the same time, Buzz is... The veteran leader in the room he can take that place for woody, so it 's not as if bonnie isn 't in great hands with Woody leaving. he recognizes that in fact that 's shared in the dialogue, but he knows that, and he knows that he can then go on it 's not just a sheer act of of selfishness also she still has Forky because of him hes he's completed yeah. that mission and given her that as well and along the way. He does what he's always done, right, which is to be of service to people, but most importantly to toys. And with that whole Gabby Gabby sequence that we get at the end of the film and the lost girl, he accomplishes both in one moment, serves her and serves the people. And then even even at the end, we recognize that he is now potentially going to seek out other toys that need that need help. So it's not just yeah, about living this life, point. right? It's yeah. not just about Woody going out and deciding I'm going to live this life. It's all about me and all about all about Bo. And it's just going to be this great romance. And I'm going really, right. you know, to really discover my retirement home no, in Florida. No, right. it's absolutely suggested that he is going to do what he's always done, but actually maybe on a larger scale. And I think yeah. that's really powerful. And the movie also suggests it in subtle ways, suggests that this is what was always kind of inside of him. And he deserves, he absolutely actually deserves to finally explore this side of himself. When we see the the world in different ways in this movie with these great point of view shots and the fact that he sees things from a different perspective and the series does a great job throughout we'll get to some of them uh, of using point of view shots but when mm-hmm. we see them on top of they're on top of something in the antique store and they see the lights and the way the lights just kind of bounce off each other and the different mm-hmm. the different antiques that are hanging and they pause for a moment and I just think it's that, that moment of recognition just like a moment that happens when they're on top of the carousel where they're looking down on the world in a way those toys haven't looked at it before. I might
1: get back to one of those moments a little later in the episode. And it
0: establishes that sense of longing that was within Woody all along that absolutely justifies the ending of this film.
1: I I couldn't agree more. And I I think it's a more sort of a, a poetic and earned ending, you know? I mean, three is more emotional, but it also is a little tidier because it gives Woody what he ostensibly thinks he wants, which is a new kid and i think this movie gives woody what he actually needs what he thought was his greatest fear is actually the life that as you said i think he's earned and uh, will ultimately find the most rewarding i mean a thing you have to think about with these movies is these characters are essentially immortal i mean it's this very bizarre thing that aside from the incinerator where they're going to just be burned uh, you know to death and presumably lose all consciousness, there's this thing throughout the franchise where they can lose limbs and reattach them and they're fine. Mr. Potato Head can remove any part of his face and apply it to another, a tortilla, you know, Mm -hmm. and it still retains his consciousness. Um, And even, uh, you know, Sid's mutant toys, uh, you know, when he's mashing these creatures up from different pieces, they all have their own consciousness. Um, Woody has been alive since the 50s. Yes. We don't know what happened to him in between when he was manufactured in the 50s to tie into this TV show and when Andy got him. But he has been around for a long, long time. They imply at some point that he's a family toy. He's perhaps uh, a hand me down from Woody's father. Um, But he has lived many lifetimes now. And, uh, you know, as long as he is not, uh, you know, uh, completely disintegrated, he will probably continue to live many more. But the ending they give him here is the one where he is able to take everything he has learned how to do, all of his greatest strengths, his courage, you know, his empathy, uh, his commitment to looking out for other toys and, and other kids and all of that. And actually, as you said, apply it on a broader scale, which I think is a very, very optimistic uh, and poignant ending. And that, that's what gives this movie a slight edge over three for me. Mm. You know, I think three, uh, it, all the complaints that people have about three, I completely agree with and also don't care about if that makes any <laughs> sense. I, I don't agree three, with and I don't care. <laughs> right. I think yeah. three regurgitates a lot of two. I get it. Uh, I get it. Yeah. and I, I'm a little bugged by that sort of repetition because I think otherwise, two adds so many new questions, and four adds so many new questions and ideas, and three is sort of paying off the things teed up into. But everything um, about, a lot.
0: But, but everything the about whole, the prison well done, escape right. motif though is completely right. different and so right. so much fun on its own terms.
1: I will agree with you there. Yeah, I mean, there's sections that are wholly original. I think it's more about the larger themes and ideas are more just sort of working towards what was seen as the obvious ending as set up by two, Mm. you know? Yeah. And I like that this is the less obvious ending and that also it is a film of so much invention. Um, I mean, even just the way they set up, I saw some critic compare... The antique shop in this film to uh, like Temple of Doom, you know? It feels like this this uh, Spielberg, Indiana Jones sort of uh, Rube Goldberg machine uh, uh, environment of just endless traps and and pitfalls and all of this. And it's a thing this franchise does incredibly well which is you can have a movie that mostly takes place in one store and feels like an epic Yeah, because these characters are so small and because their fears are things that you would never even consider.
0: Absolutely. So can you indulge me can I give my Toy Story 3 Ten Commandments please. feel here? So yeah, I don't please. know that it counters anything that you're saying about Toy Story three, or is intended and once again, to... I
1: still think it's a great film. It's okay. just that's the reason I put it a step
0: behind. I for. got it; that absolutely makes sense. And actually, I did comment on part of this back when we reviewed Toy Story three on the show because there's undoubtedly, and I'll just say about the Ten Commandments. I'm using that as opposed to the Bible specifically as my reference point. I had to write. Like three papers about that Cecil B. DeMille film as a grad student. <laughs> so it's it's fairly fresh in my mind. And the thing I commented on at the time about Toy Story 3 was there's a clear nod, just an undeniable. I've never read it anywhere, but it has to be an undeniable nod to the Ten Commandments when at the end, when Lotso can pull the switch and doesn't really need to say anything at all. he He could stop them and instead lets them go on it seems to their death the line he says is where is your he says where is your kid now right and in yeah. the 10 commandments edward g robinson famously says to charlton heston's moses where is your messiah now right it's it's almost word for mm-hmm. word sub in kid for messiah right so that is clearly a not, and that's where it all kind of comes to you in this moment that woody has always assumed this role of moses spreading the word Never, never wavering in his faith in his kid slash God, and we get that 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 moment when they're talking about what are we going to do, where are we going to go, and he's almost. This is very early in the film before they even get accidentally put in the trash bag, and he's saying, he's saying we're going to be fine. He's he's shocked that they are wavering and they're thinking about maybe going and doing their own, you know, kind of trying to carve out their own path. He's just always going to be true. To Andy. And then with Lotso, we get this kind of combination of the Edward G. Robinson character and also the Yul Brenner character, Ramses, where he's punishing and enslaving the toys here, right? We can see the mm-hmm. metaphor who have been expelled from their home. And what really stuck with me this time, re watching it, is that even the arrival at Sunnyvale, I think, is a nod to the Ten Commandments because you notice how they get there and it's this party. It's this absolute hedonistic (laughs) blast where Mm -hmm. everyone but Woody sees all the fun they're having and all the pleasure that they could be enjoying, and they are instantly seduced by it. And this is the moment in the Ten Commandments with the golden calf, with the idolatry, where they're just – they're partying like crazy, and Moses is looking down on them and judging them. So it's all there, and we see at the end of the film that Lotso ultimately gets punished because he doesn't believe, right? But Woody – and his friends, they get rewarded because they never waver in that at all. Their mm-hmm. faith is rewarded. And in some ways, as much as I love three, there's a sort of old school, very kind of affirmation of yes, of that, that always it rubbed me a little bit the wrong way. And then I get to Toy Story four and I see that they have then decided to completely challenge that and and make it a little bit more about the the individual finally asserting himself in this case.
1: Yeah, which I, I think you hit a lot of what uh, what works for me in four over three. But, you know, I think the most interesting difference between Lotso and the prospector is that Lotso is kind of a cult leader, as you said. You know, it's not just that he's this sort of... Uh, a two-faced, you know, avuncular uh, sort of mentor who then turns on them. But it's that he sort of demands this kind of obedience and this commitment to the system and paying your dues, you know, and then you're rewarded with, as you said, this beautiful party life, Yeah. Um, that he is sort of a false god or at least wants to make himself into one because he has become so disillusioned with the idea of the child as god. Um, Whereas Toy Story 4 and and, and Woody is rewarded for, uh, you know, uh, disobeying Lotso, not falling prey, fighting against him. And then he's rewarded with a a new uh, child god. Uh, 4, I think, is more interesting because it kind of gets at this idea that Woody can have a spiritually profound life without having to solely serve a very binary idea of a god. Sure. If that makes sense. It does. But, you know, maybe if you actually watch the last
0: 20 minutes of Toy Story 3 in their entirety, not with those tears in your eyes, you would recognize how powerful they are and that that's why Toy Story 3 is the best film.
1: Well, look, I'm not going to argue with you and we'll discuss it more when we get to our moments.
0: (laughs) Okay, so we will get to our moments and we'll have a little bit more talk before that. We will find out if Griffin will acknowledge the existence of any Toy Story movie that isn't Toy Story 2 as we get to (laughs) our top five scenes from the series. Stay with us. You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. When the road looks Rough ahead, and you're miles and miles from your nice, warm bed. You just remember what your old pal said. Son,
1: you've got a friend in me. Yeah, you've got a friend in me.
0: You know how sometimes things line up? Yeah. You know, like coincidences. Since we've been here, they've been happening more and more. I think, I feel like, it means like she's getting closer. Who? mirror girl. That was Winston Duke and Lupita Yango and Jordan Peele's Us. Do you remember Us? Because it really was all anyone could talk about back in March, and now it's almost July, the midpoint of the year. We are going to get to the best movies of the year so far next week on the show when Josh is back. And we're going to share our top five movies of the year so far. I'm not going to force you to weigh in Griffin just yet on your pick for the best film of the year so far. If you have it, we'll get to that as we share the poll question in a moment. If you want to be part of that show, you can share your favorite film of the year so far. Feedback at filmspotting.net. You can leave us a voicemail as well. three one two two six four zero seven four four or find us on twitter at film spotting one last plug for josh's big meetup griffin he's out in la he's got like 50 people coming to a film spotting meetup and you may have heard me on a recent show say you know the one you came to in new york it was like eight of us so Mm -hmm. how how offended should i be
1: not at all i mean look uh, josh has gone hollywood he's sold out that's it That's it. So depending on when you're hearing this, you
0: may still have time. And if you're in the L.A. area for our podcast listeners there, you may still have time to make it out to the Firestone Walker Brewing Company. It's in Marina Del Rey. I mean, come on. That sounds like a sellout right
1: there, Josh. A 100 percent. Oh, yeah. The New York meetup, it wasn't small. It was uh, it was exclusive. Exclusive. You know, it had a limited sort of underground cool to it. (laughs)
0: Love it. Filmspotting.net slash events is where you can RSVP. So you have to RSVP For Josh's hoity-toity little affair. You didn't have to do that when we met at the pub for some pints in New York. A quick plug for our friends at the Next Picture Show podcast. This week, they've got part two of their Godzilla double feature, the new Godzilla King of the Monsters with Ishiro Honda's 1954 original. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, we encourage you to do so. The Next Picture Show drops every Tuesday at midnight. And we're probably going to close this survey out pretty soon, Really appreciate all the listeners who have taken about two minutes, that's all it will take, to go over to filmspotting.net slash survey and tell us about their experience with The Next Picture Show. And your experience might be that you've never listened to it. That's fine, too. Your feedback's really valuable. Again, filmspotting.net slash survey. And Griffin, filmspotting madness is a long ways away. But, you know, Sam and I are insane. And our listeners are insane for the most part, and they wanted to get a head start on the films that might be in contention for next year's round of 64 or 75 or 80 tournament. Uh, we're going to name ultimately the best film of the 2010s. And we put up the short list. Basically, the films that we're considering, it's about 104 films long. And if you wow. you want to get your homework started for next March, you can do that at filmspotting.net slash Madness has has film spotting madness been something you've been a participant in
1: I have and I have to admit too, uh, very inspired by you we do a blank check March Madness now because uh, our, our podcast is kind of structured like in a, a never-ending series of film spotting marathons where we pick a director and right. go through all of their films and so we've now started every March doing a, uh, a bracket of uh, 32 directors to potentially cover on the show. Um, And and you uh, deserve all the credit in the world for giving me that idea.
0: Well, I like your variation on it. Absolutely. So that works well. Now, we have you here on the show. You are, as we said, you are an actor. You're a thespian. And so when we would normally play Massacre Theater and just revisit it, give listeners another chance to chime in with what scene they thought Josh and I performed so poorly the week prior... Maybe they just hear a clip, but we actually have you here, a legitimate actor in the house. So we thought instead, even though I can't believe this was a great idea Sam had to to put you on the spot like this and to perform this scene. But then that means I have to reperform, and that's not good for anyone.
1: Know about that? I mean, I, I feel like sometimes as an actor, uh, you dread reshoots, but you end up feeling rewarded that you have a second crack at, sure. at a piece of material. <laughs> uh, and you know, I I think it's nice to give the listeners a new interpretation. I mean, the scene we're doing—it's it's like Hamlet. You know, you <laughs> want to see different actors take their uh, have their take on the character. Sure. Yeah, don't give them hints, Griffin.
0: With this. no no, no. <laughs> referencing Hamlet there, it'll that's
1: going to throw people way oh, off.
0: Yeah, it will. Yeah. So we talked about this little off air and we didn't know who should play what part. And I thought you should absolutely play Josh's part so you could make him look bad. And (laughs) it turns out that's going to work out well because the other version of that would be you play the part that you think you could have the most fun with. It turns out that's Josh's part. So I do get to take another stab at this character, though I have not. I've not done any rehearsal. I have not done any warm ups and quite frankly, don't even remember how she sounds. So this could be this could be pretty terrible.
1: Don't think of it as another stab. Think of it as an opportunity to perfect. This, okay. is, this is a chance to <laughs> hone it. And, and I was saying to you before we recorded that the actor uh, uh, who originated the role I will now be playing here, uh, taking over for Josh Larson, has a very distinctive voice. And I feel like my impression has ended up sounding a lot like a very different actor with a very distinctive voice. <laughs> Okay, well, Josh is
0: guilty of that all the time, so it's Great. just like it's just like he's. It's here. not
1: Smeagol, but it's it's another. It might <laughs> he does. People off. He
0: does love him some Gollum. I don't know he why. He goes to Gollum.
1: Yep, it's his go-to.
0: Okay, yeah. well, we'll see what your go-to is as we get into the scene. I started off, so you're going to give me the action, and and just real quick, we'll remind people that we did change the names here. These are not the names of the actual characters in the film, though. There might be a couple hints via the names.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, are you ready? No, but let's try. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. And action.
0: What's happened to you, Reggie Dix? Stay out of this, Reba. You're driving away the people who love you most. I don't need anybody, Reba. All I need is my music. <sighs> this ain't about your music, Reggie. It's about the drugs. Honey, I told you. I'm going to quit again. Just as soon as the records done, well, whenever that might be. Look, you can't rush a masterpiece. You need to take a break, Reggie. You need to clean yourself up. Otherwise. Otherwise what? Otherwise I can't be married to you no more. I uh, no, you don't mean that. I believe you know that I do. And scene. <laughs> well, I know who I think you sounded like. Who do you uh-huh. think you sounded like that isn't this actor?
1: I'll say, uh, running it before this, I, I thought I was sounding like Ray Romano. Ah, uh, uh, Little but bit now I feel like I, I'm sounding a little bit more like uh, some sort of tertiary uh, Sesame Street monster. <laughs> you know what? Probably
0: closer for me. That was that was a lot of channeling Hank Hill.
1: Oh, fair enough. Yes, yes. My so. producer here on our end in the studio is giving a thumbs up to that. <laughs>
0: Got it. Well, that was fun. <laughs> if you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is this coming Monday. That's June 24th. We will select the winner randomly from all the correct entries and announce that winner on next week's show. right Jack with Griffin and David. right Jack with so ahead of the top five i did want to spend a moment to talk a little bit more about your show blank check first that theme song which we just heard a little bit of who did that and did you guys always have that in place
1: uh, that's our friend Leigh Montgomery, who's a great musician here in New York City, uh, who I've known for a while. And uh, the first year of our podcast, uh, this podcast started as uh, David Sims, uh, film critic of The Atlantic, and myself uh, thinking it would be funny to do a show where we only talked about Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace as if that was the only Star Wars movie that had ever been made. Right. Uh, And we thought that was evergreen. We thought we would never run out of conversation doing that (laughs) podcast. And our producer, Ben, uh, very wisely, uh, strongly encouraged us to think of uh, things that the show could ultimately evolve into if it worked. Um, So after about a year of doing the Star Wars movies, discovering them one at a time, we uh, we rebranded as Blank Check. And that's when Lane's uh, theme song came in, which I reached out to him, I think, about three days before the episode dropped and said, you can say anything you want. Just uh, just make a theme song that says that the show is Blank Check. So that's why the lyric is don't know what to say or to expect. All you need to know is that the name of the show is Blank Check because that was about (laughs) as much direction as I gave him.
0: It's so good. It's so good. Now, you touch on this a little bit, that the show structure is kind of like our marathons here where we dive into a certain topic and you guys look Mm -hmm. at different filmmakers. So right now I'm behind and I have not gotten into it. I can't wait to because I kind of adore this filmmaker and you've got a great lineup here of michael Mann, michael mansplaining so looking at thief looking at the keep with the filmmaker alex ross perry the last of the mohicans with the great critic dana stevens of course covering manhunter and heat as well that heat episode two hours and 52 minutes which it just it it seemed familiar to me and sure enough i looked up the heat runtime and it's exactly two hours and 52 minutes i'm guessing that's not an accident
1: uh, no, it was an accident. our Our producer here ben is is rolling his eyes in the studio because he's the one who has to work extra nights and weekends every time one of our episodes comes in that long. I think the show has just uh you know we really try to make our show as sort of unstructured as possible. You want to feel like a fun uh a conversation the kind of talk you have when you go out for drinks or dinner after a movie with other friends as passionate as you and you get into every detail of it and uh, we keep on thinking that we've hit the benchmark of how long an episode could conceivably be and then it just somehow gets longer and longer and longer and now we have this thing where a lot of our most frequent guests like uh, Alex Ross Perry come on and competitively try to break the record <laughs> uh, so what is the record so, it, it is now heat it's now 252 okay. no one's cracked three we did a two-part episode on Titanic where we tried to replicate the fact that that movie was broken into two VHS tapes. So I think those two episodes combined are over three, a. but uh, th- those were released a week apart. So if for a single episode dropped at one time, uh, heat is the record, but I'm sure someone's going to force us to break it soon. Got it. So your co-host,
0: David, uh, how, of course, writes for The Atlantic. Uh, how long have you guys known each other?
1: Uh, we've known each other, I want to say for about five or six years now, we've been doing the show for four going on five. Uh, we, we became friends through, uh, Twitter because a lot of people who knew both of us, uh, said, you guys tweet very similar things all the time. Why don't you hang out with each other? Wow. So we went on a movie date. We went to see, uh, uh, Sarah Polly's stories. We tell, I know a a film spotting favorite fan. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we saw that together. And then a couple months later, we saw uh, Sofia Coppola's The Bling Ring together. And it felt like we were just going to be casual friends who maybe saw each other once or twice a year. But that uh, second time we hung out, our friend Pilot Virouette, who's an excellent writer in their own right, uh, invited us to a movie trivia night at a, a sadly now defunct bar in Brooklyn called Videology. And uh, I had just gotten fired off of a network sitcom, and David had just gotten out of a years-long relationship, and both of us needed a new thing to obsess over. Mm -hmm. So we became all in on this movie trivia night, and that was really the core of our friendship. And when after a year or two we stopped going, we decided we needed something new, some new structure to force us to hang out once a week. And that that became a podcast uh, that that somehow people listen to now. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Because
0: I think about how this show started for us, and it was myself and Sam, kind of the same thing, forcing ourselves— Yes, to watch a movie a week, but also to have a reason to talk to each other every week. Yeah, Right. Because you're, you're, you're busy with your lives and work and all those things. And and you used to have so much fun. And we had fun because I had a blog and we would he would contribute to it and we would have these discussions, these dialogues back and forth. And then it just stopped. And it's like, great, that part of my life is now missing. And the podcast completely filled that in. And also similar with Josh, like you and David didn't know each other at all had no had no connection and kind of like like you guys we just went out for a drink one night and realized well this could work maybe we should get him in the studio and see what happens and here we are you know how many seven years later so
1: yeah it's crazy no I, I think a thing that Dave and I found in each other is that we were both people who not only were obsessed with movies but we're obsessed and sort of encyclopedic about elements of movies or movie culture that most people don't even think about. Mm-hmm. Like we both are really interested in billing orders in films, which <laughs> actors have negotiated you know, certain billing orders or failed awards campaigns or things like that, you know? Yeah. Um, and so we would get to this trivia night early every week to try to stake out a good table and then would have these conversations for two or three hours. And so when we started doing the podcast, we were like, well, we would be having these conversations either way. Mm-hmm. and if people. Want to listen to it? That's great. But the thing that's been nice is we find other people who listen to the show and go, like, I don't have anyone in my life to talk about this stuff with. I notice these things, and no one else cares about it. Right. And it's nice to spend three hours a week, even if that sounds <laughs> indulgent feeling like I'm in a conversation with those sorts of people. And then a lot of our most frequent guests, I mean, people like Alex Ross Perry, who we didn't know personally, but he started listening to the show and pays attention to the same sort of arcane stuff that we do. Wow! And so he has become a friend through saying, like, I need an outlet to talk about this stuff.
0: Yeah. No, I was curious about that, whether or not guys like... Perry were people you had a connection to at all, or they just started listening to the show because we have that kind of surreal moment too sometimes with different filmmakers, you know, whether it's Trey Edward Schultz or it's Sean Baker or, you know, others that Ryan Johnson, obviously, who actually are listening, you know, frequently to the show. It kind of blows your mind for a second.
1: It's pretty nuts. Yeah. We've had uh, uh, Alex on many times now and uh, Chris White's, uh, mm-hmm. has become a listener and a, a past and future guest and David Lowry, uh, And it's very bizarre because these people will just reach out to us and go like, hey, I know you guys are busy, but I'd love to come by sometime if you'd have me. And it feels very <laughs> weird that this thing that we used to do in like a closet uh, has now become a thing that professional Oscar nominated people listen to. Yeah. Uh, and want to be part of. Yeah. It's, it's very flattering. It is
0: indeed and, and exciting. And uh, it's a great show. The Blank Check podcast available wherever you get your podcasts. Buzz Lightyear to Star Command. Come in, Star Command. Star Command, come in. Do you read me? Why don't they answer? <gasps> My ship! Of course, Tim Allen's Buzz Lightyear from the first entry in what was the Toy Story trilogy. It gets us into our deeply flawed poll question that we posed a couple of weeks back. We wanted to know, what was your favorite non-Woody Toy Story voice performance. And we say flawed because we acknowledge that we probably should have just left Tim Allen's Buzz Lightyear You're out of it. But Sam, his heart was in the right place. He thought, you know, Ned Beatty's Lotso Hug and Bear is kind of the the main co-star, the key voice of three, and Joan Cusack's Jesse is really the key voice in two. So who's the key voice in one? And you could argue that it's Buzz. So we gave you those three options, or you could go other, and this is how it came out. going to other. Ned Beatty and Lotso Huggenbear only getting 17%. Joan Cusack's Jesse, my pick, 29%. And Buzz Lightyear, 44%. Did you have a clear pick in that poll, Griffin?
1: Well, there's an empirically correct answer, which is Jesse. Jesse is the right answer here. I, I do think the, the poll is structured incorrectly. I think either should have been the three main characters in Other. It should have been Woody, Buzz, and Jesse. Or you should have taken Jesse and Buzz off the list and just had it be supporting characters. Yep, yep, that absolutely but, uh, makes sense. Either either way, Jesse, for me, is the winner. Gotcha. So we got some feedback
0: here, including this one. We'll start with David Tarasso.
1: David says, Every action story needs a good villain, and Lotso and Bear is up there with some of the late, great Stan Lee's best. He's got a motivation that begins with a slight only to become truly twisted. Yes, he
0: does indeed. Eric Houter says, this poll is ridiculous nonsense. Tell us how you really (laughs) feel, Eric. Buzz, as the co-lead of the films, and I don't care what you say to the contrary, should not be listed. And then stupid Lotso Huggin' Bear? Really? Michael Keaton's Ken doll deserves to be on there more than Lotso. Rex, Ham, Mrs. Potato Head, the little alien dudes. But honestly, no matter who you put on the list, it will always be Jesse by a mile. See, we come back around. We're in agreement with Eric after all. That, Eric's a very smart man. There yeah. you go. She is the heart and soul of the franchise at this point, and no other animated scene will ever destroy my soul like the sharpened poignancy of the When She Love Me sequence in Toy Story 2. You know, I don't know why I didn't read this earlier, and I could have stolen that line, destroy my soul like the sharpened poignancy, <laughs> because I may just need it when we get into the top five.
1: Uh, uh, most definitely. Uh, and I agree with Eric there. You know, uh, lots of Hugging Bears at a different level than the core three we're talking about here. And uh, if you're going to realistically do a best supporting voice poll, you need to have at least 15 options, including <laughs> Michael Keaton, my, my favorite living actor. OK,
0: fair enough. Alfredo Gutierrez also wrote in.
1: Yeah. Uh, Alfredo said, I believe Ham to be one of the funnier characters in the Toy Story universe. When I think of speaking pigs in film, I think of Ham. That's okay. quite the, uh, mm. the snipe at babe. Yes, Yes,
0: it is. So we screwed up that poll, but we still enjoyed the results and the feedback. Thank you, everyone who participated in that one. This one, probably a little less flawed. I mean, certainly people are going to write in and say, you know, I don't think that movie belongs and maybe these other two or three should have been there. But we try to look at the year so far and get a sense not only from what Josh and I have said on the show, but other critics, what films seem to be emerging to be in the discussion for the best film of 2019 so far, and these are the options that we have settled on: Avengers: Endgame, which is still in theaters; Olivia Wilde's smart also in theaters; your friend Alex Ross Perry, his movie starring Elizabeth Moss, Her Smell, which is available to rent; Claire Denis' High Life, which is available to purchase, apparently, but not yet to rent or stream. We're giving you John Wick, Duke Kaboom himself. Chapter three, Parabellum, also still in theaters, or the clip we heard that started off this segment, Jordan Peele's Us, which is available to rent. And if you hate all those options, you could go with another film you've seen this year. You could vote other and write that one in. So, Griffin, do you have a clear winner in this one?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think my answer is us. You were asking if anyone still remembers it. It's a movie I'm still wrestling with months later and rewatched again recently. And I, I really think... Uh, It is a pretty incredible uh, film, Um, but I, I love all the options on this list, actually. Uh, I feel like I've been disappointed with a lot of movies I've seen this year. Uh, But when you see the options presented in front of you like this, there's been quite a few things that really uh, hit me.
0: Yeah, there are definitely some good options here. And I'm guessing at least one or two of them will be in my top five. We will share our best films of the year so far next week here on FilmSpotting. This poll has been up for a little bit. Our FilmSpotting newsletter subscribers got it earlier in the week. And not surprisingly, us does have a small lead, but Booksmart and Endgame are right behind it. Other is in second place, and some of the movies that got multiple write-in votes, and we did definitely think about Apollo 11, which... I love. Did you get a chance to see that documentary, Griffin?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely loved it and saw it at your recommendation. It wasn't even on my radar until I heard you guys uh, speak about it. Well, and
0: the movie we talked about just last week on the show and talked to Joe Talbot and Jimmy Fales, part of the team behind The Last Black Man in San Francisco. I think that's another film that definitely needs to be in the mix. That has gotten some write-in votes. Birds of Passage, one that I still need to see. And yes, Josh has hated, even though he hasn't seen it, Rocket Man.
1: I'm disappointed you didn't sing it this time. You're breaking tradition. You know what? What, what am I doing? You know if what? Josh it's, isn't here. I don't yeah. want to. I don't
0: want to. Exactly. I don't have him to torment. And also,
1: sure.
0: I don't want to perform in front of you, an actual performer. That's it. Well, I please. think <laughs>
1: uh, I'll say my my other vote, the film that's neck and neck for me with uh, us for the year. And I'm just going to say it because I know it's an unpopular opinion. I fully love uh, M. Night Shyamalan's uh, uh Glass. Uh, which I know you guys were more favorable than most on, but he was the first guy we ever covered on Blank Check, and I uh, I, I think that's a really fascinating movie that actually is going to age well uh, hmm. with some distance from the expectations. Okay. I, I'm willing to admit that, is, that it is one I was
0: probably a little harsh on. Josh was very favorable on that movie and kind of balanced yeah. out our review a little bit. I always think Shyamalan is— is attempting to do interesting things. So I don't begrudge anyone at all who has that reaction to the film. I got to say,
1: it's an ambitious, yeah. uh, uh, unexpected movie. Yes. It's a good way to a- put and it. And you were less harsh than many of the critics I read. Probably true. I heard on the film. But I, I do think, you know, it, it's a pretty antagonistic film when viewed as a direct sequel to Unbreakable and uh, Split. Mm-hmm. But I think sort of taken on its own and as sort of uh, M. Night Shyamalan making a statement about... The state, uh, the state of superhero media, I, I think it's a really, really engaging mm-hmm. movie. A weird movie, but I, I think one that will ultimately age well.
0: Well, I'm guessing there will be a few other votes for that one as well. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. You're my favorite deputy. you got a friend in me. you got a friend in me. Let's wrangle up the cattle. When the road looks rough ahead and you're miles and miles from your nice warm bed. Round them up,
1: cowboys.
0: Just remember what your old pal said, boy, you got a friend in me. Yeah, you got a friend in me. That's how it all began. That simply, Randy Newman, of course, there. You've got a friend in me from the opening scene of the first toy story movie we are now going to share our top five toy story scenes you have heard throughout this show how big of a fan my guest here griffin newman is of this series this must have been very difficult for you to pare it down to five
1: uh, yeah, it, it was incredibly difficult. I mean this series is my Star Wars, the way most people talk about Star Wars being the the movie that kind of activated them at a, at a young age to get more seriously into film and filmmaking. Uh, and these are movies I have watched so incessantly and studied and uh, ranted about to anyone in my general vicinity that it was hard to limit. But I, I put a few rules on myself. Uh, I tried to not double up, which you'll see my cheat in a second for how hmm. I got around – Uh, not doubling up on a five-item list. Yes. And uh, you had uh, uh, graciously given me your thoughts for what you were going to put on your five. So I tried to pick different moments so we could uh, represent a wider variety for the sake of the
0: episode. Well, I can't wait to hear your variety. I will say in advance that I had really formed my list. I was open to bumping something out. But I'd formed it before I saw Toy Story 4. And just in the aftermath, it's only been 24 hours since I've seen the movie. There wasn't a clear scene that jumped out that said, you know what? You've got to bump something to make room for it. But I can't wait to hear what you may have included from Toy Story 4. I think there are definitely moments that are worth consideration for a list like this. But let's jump in. Let's start with your number five Toy Story scene.
1: So we'll start out with my cheat. Uh, My number five comes from Toy Story of Terror which is a Halloween TV special. Is that canon? That I believe aired. I, I fully contend that it's canon. Okay. And this is why. Four actually directly uh, acknowledges a bunch of stuff from it and the other sort of uh, media that Disney made, uh, Pixar made in the years in between three and four. So there was a series of three theatrically released uh, short films that played in front of uh, Disney films and then uh, two TV specials. And Toy Story of Terror is uh, the riff on a horror movie that was aired as a Halloween special but isn't really seasonal in any way. And it is uh, the gang, uh, you know, uh, are in the trunk of a car uh, with Bonnie and her mom when the rain starts hitting heavy and they have to pull over and stay at a kind of creepy motel for the night. And Mr. Pricklepants, the uh, Timothy Dalton character, who is the thespian of the group. Uh, tries to explain to them the tropes of a horror movie which makes all of them completely paranoid that they are in fact in a haunted house uh, type scenario where they're all going to get abducted the roadside motel is one of the most common locales for a horror film remote isolated
0: ordinary a comforting environment to allay the suspicions of the audience i
1: expect they'll be asking the innkeeper to use the telephone any minute now would it be okay if i used your phone our car is flat right on cue And over the course of the special, they start disappearing, and Jessie uh, has to reckon with her own sort of anxiety. Um, And this is the reason I included it on the list. Aside from the fact I think it's very good, and if folks haven't seen them, uh, they're pretty widely available. I believe all of this stuff will be probably uh, streaming uh, on Disney Plus when that hits at the end of the year, but they're on iTunes and any other sort of rental platform right now. Um, but Toy Story of Terror is the one that really is kind of focused on Jessie as a 20-minute special. Hmm. And Jessie, I think, gets the short shrift in 3 and 4. After 2 is so much her film emotionally, I think they never really found uh, another story for her in the two theatrical films, which uh, always kind of bum me out because she's my favorite character in the franchise. But um, Toy Story of Terror is really about Jessie coming to terms with her anxiety. Uh, which I really relate to as a very anxious person. And it's coded into her sort of hyperventilation, her fear of being in a box after being in one for so long. Uh, Toy Story of Terror is about Jessie having to uh, come face to face with everything that she fears the most and learn how to uh, somehow overcome those fears. Hmm. So there's a moment at the end of the film, which I'll call the Jessie finds a way moment, in which Jessie realizes the only way to save her friends is to willingly put herself in a box and allow herself to be taped inside. Um, And once they get inside the box, there's all sorts of uh, uh, really kind of uh, clever camera tricks. I say camera tricks, but, you know, CGI approximation of a camera tricks to sell the claustrophobia as Jessie's breath tightens uh, and her panic rises before she ultimately is able to sort of compose herself and uh, find a way, as it were.
0: Ugh. Jesse never gives up. Jesse finds a way. Jesse never gives up. Jesse finds a way. Jesse never gives up. <gasps> JESSE FINDS A WAY!
1: But yes, Toy Story of Terror, completely canon. Combat Carl, (laughs) old timer, a few of the characters who make small appearances in Toy Story 4 all originate in Toy Story of Terror. So it is part of the proper canon of the series. Well, I'm not going to argue
0: with you because I don't know that anybody listening has the credibility to argue with you (laughs) on this topic. So I completely buy it. And frankly, you had me at Jesse is the focus because I'm all in for that type of situation. And I don't know that... Anxious would be the right word necessarily to describe me, but neurotic certainly and highly, highly claustrophobic. So I relate to Jesse on many levels and this one might be for me.
1: Yeah, and the thing I think I always loved about Jesse was, uh, you know, as a performer who also has generalized anxiety, that she oscillates between being so sort of lively and outspoken and energetic and being very, very scared and panicked uh, and anxious. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think uh, very often anxious characters are coded as just being fearful, uh, much like Rex in the series. And Jesse contains multitudes. Absolutely, she does. So – Sometimes with lists like
0: this, they truly are scenes, and sometimes they are more moments. And my number five is definitely more of a moment, a great transition, actually, coming off your number five pick as we're in the... The same realm here with Bonnie and Mr. Pricklepants and that whole acting troupe with Dolly, which I just love. I love that they pop back up again in this film and actually wish we could have spent even more in Toy Story 4. I wish we could have spent even more time with them. My moment is Bonnie throwing Woody up into the air in Toy Story 3. And it it may not be one of those moments that really sticks out to viewers of the film but I'll try to paint the picture here this is when Woody has first arrived at the house after leaving Sunnyvale and he's just met the troop and they're complimenting him on his acting skills which again I love all that humor and Bonnie comes running in she's found her quote unquote spaceship and it's this box that she puts all the toys in and she sets the box on her bed sheet and we see her throw all the toys up into the air she says three two one blast off As they soar in the air, we get this great music cue. They're ascending in slow motion. Three, two, one, let's go! We cut to a close-up of Woody, his arms completely outstretched as he comes up and then just descends and softly falls onto the bed. And that close-up, that moment of ecstasy, of transcendent joy, because he's being played with. Not not just loved, but he's he's being used in the way that, we touched on this kind of in our review of Toy Story 4, used in the way he was created to be used, is so rewarding for him, feels so good for him that it becomes magical for us to watch as viewers as well. And I think it's especially true when you understand that he isn't at this moment being played with much at home. Andy has kind of forsaken him and he just left his friends at Sunnyside with that expectation that they were going to live this kind of life now every day. And in this moment, you can't even get the sense that Woody had maybe even forgotten what that feeling was like. And it all comes rushing back to him in that close up. And it's all con- conveyed in the filmmaking and the animation, the music, the slow mo, the-, the composition, even the cut, as it would be in any movie. But also, there's this interesting dynamic at work throughout this series, I think. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. When your character, as a filmmaker, when your characters, your actors, if you will, can't actually express themselves. Right. Yeah, because yeah. in this I moment, this. I'm yeah,
1: glad you brought this up. You yeah.
0: can't actually react. So I did pick the scene partly because of how fa- fascinating I found it and found it throughout the whole series. Every time we cut to a close up of a toy that's being held by a person or is in the presence of a human, they, of course, don't move because of the rules. They have that perma smile on their face. And yet somehow we know in every moment exactly what they're feeling and i think it's because of those visual elements that i mentioned but also because of our attachment to these characters and how how wonderfully developed they are and our understanding of them and there's an example in toy story 4 when there's multiple examples but when woody reunites with hey, bo Peep, with bo i'm glad
1: you brought this up yeah i was gonna bring this like up. Yeah. he's
0: he's being played with they are being played with in that moment so they can't express their feelings in that moment and there's that delay, that withholding of emotion by design clearly gives it a greater impact when they finally can show their feelings when the kids put them down. I think that, that was a wonderful scene and there's another good one in Toy Story 3 when complete opposite spectrum here when the little kids first come in from recess and the gang discovers what life in Sunnyvale is really going to be like all of the cuts to the toys and their unchanging faces as they're being beaten against a wall and they're being thrown on the ground just being tormented it it just amplifies the humor that we know the pain that they're feeling and the anger that they're suppressing but they can't express it in the moment I actually think Bordwell should probably be using a scene from Toy Story any of the Toy Story movies in film art to explain the Kuleshov
1: <laughs> effect, right? Because as I was going to, I was about to say, thank you. That's be, what it is, it, right? I was going to say it's a perfect example of the Kuleshov effect because you're uh, you're projecting We're onto projecting. These characters what you know they must be feeling, even though they are pointedly, purposefully not expressing anything. That's by it. The filmmakers, it's it. And I just find that I find that
0: whole that that whole dynamic that the Pixar filmmakers clearly are having fun playing with to be brilliant. And again, this scene for me, when you take it down to its core. These Toy Story films are all about these toys constantly seeking that joy, that elation of being played with joyously by these kids that the line actually that that I think of is the one that happens in in Toy Story 2 that Jesse says, even though you're not moving, you feel like you're alive because that's how he sees you. That's how your kid sees you. And in that moment, that joy of Andy being tossed up into the air, it just really, really hit me on this rewatch of Toy Story 3.
1: Yeah, and it's a nice mirroring of the opening of Toy Story 1, of, of the You Got a Friend in Me sequence. You know, it's the first time he's felt something like that in a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, even what you were saying, the, the Sunnyview uh, sort of torture sequence is a mirroring of the Sid sequence, uh, or all the Sid sequences where he's torturing them. It's kind of fascinating that their worst moments and their best moments usually happen when they're in these sort of statue uh, yes. states. The moment – because in Toy Story 4, you know Woody is looking for Bo, knowing that she must be close by for about five or ten minutes before they finally meet. And the moment when they meet and you realize they're meeting in that statue state because kids are looking at them, they can't express it. Uh, It it actually took my breath away, and it almost made my list. Well, I'm glad that we are in lockstep on that
0: choice. I'd love to hear your number four Toy Story scene.
1: So this is my scene from Ford that just very very narrowly edged out Woody and Bo uh, re-meeting. Uh, it it is the moment that you, uh, spoke of in our proper review. It's the moment with the lamps in the antique store. Um, a lot of this movie is, uh, you know, the toys are always so low to the ground. Uh, I feel like it's, it's a trick that Pixar uses a lot where they cut out to a wide shot and you're reminded again of how small they are and how huge their surroundings are. But Toy Story 4, a lot because of Bo and, uh, the way she's sort of rewritten the rules of her life, uh, they keep on moving to higher ground. Uh, getting bird's eye view of things or or getting just broader, more expansive views of things. And as we said, Woody is always this character that's about survival or about rescue or about self-preservation or whatever it is. There's always some immediate goal that is very high stakes. And there's this moment when they're both sort of, you know, on step seven out of 12 in their multi-part rescue forky mission when Bo stops and points out that this is the time of the day where all the lamps go on in the antique store. And it's this sort of beautiful stained glass menagerie of all these different floating colors around. And the movie just stops. In my memory, there's not even really music over it. You're just watching Woody and Bo absorb this thing. And it feels like the first moment in all four films when Woody is really just taking the time to stop and appreciate something. You know, because even these moments of pure bliss when he's being played with as a toy, he's on the job, so to speak. Yeah. You know? This is solely something he's doing just for himself and something he, he had never considered. And this is the moment for me that really sells the argument uh, why I think Josh is wrong, that the ending for this film is totally earned. Because I think this is a moment that opens up Woody's mind to what kind of life he could be living in which, uh, you know, he's been living a life where he has been robbing himself of moments like this, not giving himself the opportunity to stop and smell the roses as it mm-hmm. were. It's really a, a beautiful moment
0: in Toy Story 4. Absolutely. my. It's also just just visually stunning. Yeah, it is. It, yeah. it really catches you off guard, actually, even though the film and the whole series is filled with some great single shots like that and some great perspectives. My number four is from Toy Story 2. And it's the moment that stood out to me is maybe the the scene that just made me laugh out loud the most rewatching Toy Story 2. It's when the toys are crossing the busy road, the four lane <laughs> Highway to try to get to Al's toy barn. And they're, of course, crossing in those construction cones and just totally oblivious to the chaos they're causing around them. And you get great little details. You always get great details in these films and in a lot of these shots and sequences, but you get the crash that's heard off screen and then the hubcap that rolls back into the frame past the cones a little bit. And then the semi that is carrying that big cylinder, whatever it is on the back. And it it's spinning and skidding and just almost sliding into every single one of them, but them not getting hit. And then Potato Head, at the last minute, they're getting stuck on the gum and just barely escaping. And, of course, the the perfect kicker is they get across, and we hear Potato Head say, oh, that went well. You know, just oblivious, <laughs> really, to what they caused and all the damage that was done. And then the cut to the high angle shot and we see when he says that, what he's not aware of, that 20 cars are piled up and there, there were all those multiple crashes. And it just holds for five seconds. This is another great detail. It just holds on that shot, kind of lulls you to sleep a little bit. And then the streetlight falls right past the frame and into view, landing with a thud there on the road. And for me, again, made me laugh multiple times. But I think it's also an example of what the series does so well, where we get a lot of really intricate set pieces where we see that action and the humor escalate. And let's be honest, it's not that in a film like Toy Story, any of these movies, the that suspension of disbelief is on the table. We're talking about toys that are alive, but ours. But as far as believing even in this world that these toys are somehow going to pull off the impossible, mm-hmm. you believe it. And we get a lot of these long shots. You, you touched on this. I don't remember what exact context it came up, but seeing from perspective sometimes seeing from a large perspective pulled back just how small and insignificant the toys seem and that makes you realize just how hard this life really is and we get that sense even with them crossing the street and how just how tough it would be to pull something like that off and yet by the end of it you believe that they did it as as crazy and as much fun and absurd maybe as it ultimately was i think that there's there's another good example of that that is the very beginning of this series, one of the beginning sequences, the recon mission on Andy's birthday, right? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and even in this one, the opening of Toy Story 4, the rescue of RC, just the way those those escalate with all those great details is a lot of fun. And you just see every moment, like this street scene, it gets more dangerous, so you feel the suspense of their peril, but at the same time, you're also laughing harder somehow. And so the way they're able to juggle both that that suspense and terror and the humor is just really one of the wonders of this whole franchise.
1: Yeah, I think these movies all have, if you could call them this, really good action sequences, or at least really good sort of suspense sequences like this, and part of it is that uh, you know Pixar really holds themselves to the rules that they've established, which make the stakes feel really high. that these toys have to find a way to do what, as you said, seems impossible, but in reality is crossing a street or going downstairs, you know, without getting noticed. But uh, you buy into the risk for them as these small, fragile creatures and how hard it is to make an impact in the world without any human spotting you. Um, and, and uh, you know, the, the beautiful button at the end of that traffic cone sequence is them realizing that they've gone through all this trouble and caused a car pile up when, in fact, they were where they needed to be at the first place. Yes. And they crossed the street to get further from their destination.
0: Yes, absolutely. So
1: you're number three. My number three pick, uh, you know, I tried to find moments that represented different qualities that I love about uh, these films. And so this might seem like a weird one, but I wanted to um, pick a moment that epitomized the sort of Uh, obsessive uh, detail-oriented nature of these movies. Um, You know, Pixar's always said the reason they made Toy Story as their first film was because it was the easiest thing to make via computer animation at the time. Organic material was really, really hard to represent at that time. But if you made a movie about shiny plastic things, it was pretty uh, easy to pull that off with uh, 1990s computer technology. Um, And there are two moments in Toy Story 2 that, um, you know, I think really represent how hard they work to hold themselves to the standards of uh, really making all these decisions count. I think this is a franchise where you really Get a sense anytime a character comes on screen from your childhood memory of, I remember exactly what kind of toy that is. And that has the weight and that's the sound it would make and the texture it would have. You know, the distinct differences between how a character like Lotso moves, who is purely plush and doesn't have any sort of internal skeleton versus someone like Buzz, who is all rigid plastic. Um, And uh, this moment in Toy Story 2 when the cleaner comes to repair Woody. Is just sort of this obsessive um, sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, tribute to their uh, detail-oriented nature at Pixar. Uh, Woody's arm has fallen off uh, after being ripped little by little uh, by Andy and then getting damaged further in transit. Uh, He finally ends up at Al's apartment where he's been kidnapped. And when Al pulls him out of the case, his arm falls clean off. So they have to call an expert in, the cleaner, uh, played by Roddy McDowell. Uh, who is an old man that they reused from one of their short films, Jerry's Game, uh, because they didn't have the budget to design a new character. So they literally just copy pasted the character over into hmm. this movie. Um, but you just have this wordless sequence uh, with this really excellent piece of score from Randy Newman. That is, this is, uh, you know, an area that the films otherwise don't cover. Someone whose job is to just preserve toys Uh, for historical purposes, for collectible purposes, as it were. And you just watch an expert work as he shines his boots And he polishes his eyes and restitches his arm and it ends with him uh, applying a coat of paint to the bottom of the foot covering up Andy on Woody's boot, which I remember uh, seeing that for the first time in the audience gasping. Hmm. Uh, And I love when something that is that innocuous can get that visceral response from an audience just because of the emotional weight that the film has put upon it. Right. Uh, It's a tiny insignificant act, you know, it's a man applying a coat of paint uh, to a little doll. Um, But it means a lot at this moment. And I feel like this moment is also Pixar really both challenging themselves and showing off how hard they can commit to the details of this world. Yeah, it's such a great choice. and such a standout sequence. And
0: it occurs to me while you're describing it that as I'm remembering it, I'm not sure we really get a sense ever of any pleasure. That the cleaner is taking. He maybe hints no. a little bit. Right. But for the most part, he's pretty stoic while doing it. And yet he says
1: you can't rush art. That's Al's it, right? coming in and keeping him on the clock. And he sort of pushes everything away. And this is just this methodical task for him. You know, it's like he's, a, you know, a locksmith or a plumber. Right. Or anything. But in, yeah. but in doing that, it ties back to this idea of
0: of being of service. Too, right. Mm-hmm. And and almost like the same way these toys are appreciated in a much rougher way. The way that they are shown their love and appreciation by their kids is by roughhousing and goofing around and getting banged up and dirty. But in his own way, the cleaner is doing the exact same thing. You could argue he's showing his appreciation by yeah. treating them with the reverence and the care that they that they
1: require and deserve so completely i mean you get the sense that the cleaner respects woody more than al does even if neither of them know that he has a working brain for sure
0: yeah my number three is from toy story and we talked a little bit about sid during our review of toy story 4 it's the moment when sid's mutant toys actually help out buzz and woody and it's all set up first by this great Point of view sequence where they're coming home from Pizza Planet and Buzz and Woody are in the bag, and we see everything from their perspective within that bag as they enter Sid's house and we see him fighting with his sister. And we touched on this that when you do rewatch and reconsider Toy Story and Sid, you recognize his imagination and his ingenuity and that he's probably just a little bit misguided and misunderstood. As you said, the Pixar people regard regard him as is probably an artist and that may be who he becomes. But it just speaks to our attachment right to these toys that the way they see. It gets all about that perspective and point of view. Mm-hmm. The way they see Sid is how we see Sid. And he just seems like the devil incarnate, <laughs> right? And and in this religious world that, you know, some of us think this movie inhabits, maybe that's supposed to be appropriate. But the, the moment I'm talking about is all set up first by this kind of traditional horror sequence, the night before, where Sid does the brain transplant on his sister's doll and combines mm-hmm. it with a pterodactyl. And Woody freaks out, seeing all the toy parts and he makes a break for it. And we see one of the toy pieces kind of ominously just roll out. And then that shadow that flashes behind him. And we hear some sounds from underneath the bed first. And then the mechanical spider baby emerges th- that he's, he's so terrified by. But what he sees just part of his face first, he just sees the baby's face and assumes he's friendly. But then when he sees the eye missing and the body The spider body that's when he gets scared and other things you think about like the jack in the box and the other mutant toys coming out fairly innocuous but to Woody in that moment it just amplifies the horror and we get that sense because of the angles and because of the lighting and the way we see Woody respond again we just assume that everything Sid touches must be evil like he is and that is all shattered completely right during the escape the next day the attempted escape from Sid's house when Woody's got Buzz's arm and those mutant toys grab the body back and they grab the arm and they seemingly attack. Woody says, back, you cannibals. And we then watch in this frenzy at them repairing his arm. And Woody even says, but they're cannibals. We saw them eat those other toys. No, it was (laughs) it was them helping to rebuild the other toys. And it's that moment where Woody and, of course, then through him, we as viewers just completely, Misjudge them and one of the things I was thinking about in relation to this scene and and this film is that kids movies typically even the very good ones are almost always offering some kind of message they're providing some kind of neat life lesson and here really quite subtly I think right Toy Story shows this this idea of the folly of rushing to judgment especially judging anything based solely on appearance and of not allowing for empathy and for seeing who these toys really are and thinking about what their needs are, instead just immediately viewing them as a threat to you, only through that prism of what they seem to be to you. And again, we talked about how the series is dominated by religious themes and analogies. This is a, a small moment, but I found it really moving because it was as if the toys that he was so scared of we're also just looking for a friend and of course they then look they they turn out to be helpful and they show mercy to woody and buzz and then they show that in return there's there's something powerful in maybe what could be in the overall arc of the series kind of a throwaway moment there was something powerful i thought in the redemption of those toys
1: oh totally i mean woody learns empathy through these mutant toys i mean cuz as you said To a toy, Sid looks like Satan. I mean, he looks like someone who is just gleefully torturing toys for his own enjoyment. And so it's easy for Woody to jump to the conclusion that these must be demons, you know, his minions uh, or or completely corrupted by him in some way when, in fact, they are uh, victims. And I think Woody fears them because he fears becoming them. Uh, But he holds that against them personally. And and the moment that really pays it off for me is after Buzz has been taken outside with the rocket when he has to make the direct plea to them, when he really has to come to them and ask for their help and apologize for uh, misjudging them. But it is kind of incredible. I mean, you think in 1995... It is pretty nuts how scary this sequence is for sure in terms of the design of the characters and and the use of shadow and camera angles and all these things. They really play it as a full suspense sequence, which is, you know, you think about the climate of animated films at this point in time. It's one of the reasons why Pixar made such an impact, because this is the kind of scene that a Disney movie would never have. You know, they're capable of going dark, but this is a a far more complex type of uh, dark than we had seen up until this point in time. Yeah. Your number two. My number two is the incinerator at the end of Toy Story 3. It's a moment I cannot deny. And I'm going to focus in on a really specific moment because that's what this uh, list is and not the the scenes as much. It is the moment and it's the moment that gets me where I start crying and and my crying continues for the next 20 minutes. It is when they realize Woody's sort of scrambling, trying to find anything to hold on to, how he can get out of it. And uh, the hand reaches out. Buzz reaches out his hand, and Woody realizes that there is, in fact, nothing he can do. That for the first time, there is not a solution. Uh, The Toy Story movies are really defined by uh, things going wrong over and over and over again. You know, they almost escape and then something goes wrong at the last second. They almost get out of the claw machine and then the aliens pull them back in, whatever it is. And so there's always some last saving grace. And this is the first time that he's really tested up until the last moment that maybe there's no way out of this. And the moment that destroys me is the grace of them realizing that they have each other Mm -hmm. and that they have to accept death. And if they're going to do it, they're going to do it uh, as a group. Uh, You know, it's one of the reasons I uh, am a little sad that four largely shafts the rest of the original toys, because I think a lot of this franchise is about what these characters mean to each other. Uh, You know, the solidarity in sort of uh, their helplessness in this larger world. Uh, You know, even if they're all ultimately trying to serve the kid uh, along the way, they realize what they mean to each other and, uh, you know, put their own lives on the line in order to help each other. Um, And so this moment of all of them just sort of holding hands and accepting death. Uh, is is uh, an, another bizarrely profound thing to put into a PG kids film. Yeah. You rarely see characters accept that maybe death isn't the worst thing that could possibly happen to them and make some sort of peace with it. Mm. And so the fact that they're saved at the end doesn't negate it because what is profound is that in that moment, they're ready to stop fighting. Uh, but of course, the, the aliens and the claw come back to save them at the, the last moment.
0: Yeah. And I, I don't know if I should even go down this path because I have not given this any thought until you just brought mm-hmm. up this scene. But I remember my reaction in the theater and I'm comparing it to something like the the stunned feeling when they resign themselves and it feeling so different from any other kind of suspense or action movie where you are always expecting some kind of rescue. And right. the, the path I'm not sure I want to go down is I'm thinking about something like Avengers, you know, where we've got the the Thanos snap moment that took everybody by surprise. And I get it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, in the back of our minds, we all knew, well, there are more movies. Right. But yeah, We didn't know there were right. going to be more movies with Mm -hmm. toy story three in fact i feel like most of us probably felt like there probably weren't and i remember in that moment feeling like this is kind of a brutal way to go but you know what (laughs) them all looking at each other and accepting that in that moment also kind of felt appropriate and i thought this could truly be it and that that so did stun and move me in the theater and of course then it only for me got better with the actual coda of the film but that incinerator sequence is amazing
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I couldn't agree more. And it's also, you know, there's uh, an 11 year gap between two and three and a nine year gap between three and four. And the sort of jumps you see them make in terms of the actual technology uh, are are incredible. And that uh, incinerator scene is just a, a visual marvel. Yeah. Um, you know, as terrifying as it is, it's, it's weirdly beautiful. It is. Uh, them there's all no being lit about by it. this fire. Even yeah. that, the glow
0: of the, the, the yeah. incinerator, right? That they're, yes. they're moving towards, they're moving towards their demise. And yet there's something almost, almost gorgeous about it. Absolutely. In that scene. Right. So and
1: it's like, I mean, it's like they're being, you know, torn in between heaven and hell. That's it. And, and the orange glow of the incinerator is replaced by the white glow of the claw. Yeah. And they get pulled up into heaven and, yep. and given a new life. That's it. So. Somehow, I didn't go with the
0: Andy giving his toys to Bonnie scene from the end of Toy Story 3 here or the incinerator sequence. I'm not sure how I managed to to do that and not go that way. But your pick is a perfect complement to my number two from Toy Story 3, which is the opening scene, the train robbery. And looking at it today really closely, it, it really finally occurred to me, probably should have been obvious before, that. It makes sense probably that what is basically a genre movie, this film in a lot of ways is a prison escape movie. It begins with this big genre set piece, right? It's a robbery that we've seen a million times before. The potato heads trying to rob the train and being thwarted, hopefully, by Woody. And Jesse shows up as well. and We get buzz in the mix, too. And just like in The Road Crossing, my number four, we get this great escalation of danger right the train is headed for a bridge it's bad enough the train is headed for a bridge with tnt on it and then oh no the orphans and we see that the box car is loaded with trolls and that's a great moment and then the the whole escalation of the action woody going over the cliff but being rescued by buzz and the aliens show up in barbie's car i think it's barbie's car they're probably driving dr evil pork shop comes into the mix and his giant contraption his ship and the space monkeys and the reveal all that all that's there. The reveal finally is that it's what we know, that this, of course, is all in Andy's imagination, that, that Dr. Evil Porkchop's flying machine is really just a cardboard box. It's being held together by string. And this is nothing that really jumped out at me today, rewatching this clip, that it's a perfect bookend to the entire film. Everything you just talked about with the incinerator sequence actually plays out in the opening of the film, because it puts the toys in an impossible scenario. It looks like they've finally met their demise. The monkeys have them pinned down. Dr. Evil Porkshop is about to fire this giant laser. Surely this is the end of our beloved toys, except just like in the actual end of the film, we get a deus ex machina. Andy as God divinely intervenes in this moment, <laughs> right? And yeah. gives, gives Woody the plan to shoot Buzz's laser at Woody's badge and it destroys the ship and they all miraculously live to play another day. So it's a thrilling opening. The craft of it is great, but it completely prepares us for the type of movie Toy Story 3 is and it foreshadows that ending, that ending that we just talked about and how great that is. In this, this whole sequence for me, we, just, we get to see the toys as themselves, but they're fantasy versions of themselves, which is what imagination is all about, right? It's always about bending reality and trying to escape reality in some ways. So that, that aspect of this scene is always something that's really spoken to me. But again, seeing how it perfectly sets up the end of the film is another stroke of brilliance, I think, by Pixar.
1: Yeah, it's a great pick. Um, I mean, I think it's a, a fascinating scene because it's the only time uh, in any of the films that you see the kid's imagination as they're playing. Uh, we have multiple scenes of Bonnie playing with the toys or Andy playing with the toys but they're always from the perspective of what it would really look like if you were in that room Yes, and you're seeing in this scene the fantasy uh, which also really sells uh, why Woody is fighting so hard to try to get back to Andy this whole movie because you see uh, how much fun this must be for him yeah. <laughs> you know how exciting yeah. this must be for him it's not just these statues that are being wiggled around like we usually have with the Kulachev effect it's like wow this is a really rich interior life that andy is giving them that that's they can't it. get without him yeah. um and and the mirroring that you talk about i mean that's this thing i feel like sometimes people criticize these movies that they do repeat themselves but i think often it is a very deliberate sort of echoing mm-hmm. so not only will a thing echo itself twice in one film like the beginning and the end of this but this opening is also an echo of the opening of toy story 2 right where we open game. with Was Lightyear's Adventure, and it turns out to be a video game. It's not Andy playing. It's Rex playing. But you're seeing sort of what the fantasy version of these characters are, which is an interesting thing in these films is that all of these characters are products that are based off of something, you know? Yes. Uh, They're not one of a kind, and they have this sort of – They're wrestling with their identity in terms of who they feel like they are and who they are sort of literally meant to be. That's it. You know, Buzz thinks he's a real spaceman. Woody owns that he is a toy. But then you even have characters like Rex, who are designed to be a scary dinosaur but feel insecure. And uh, this is the scene where everyone is kind of living their best life. That's it. Um, and it's nice that it's all these callbacks from one and two, evil Dr. Porkchop, and the badge reflection happens when Andy plays with them in two, and uh, Slinky as the force field dog and Rex is the, the dinosaur that eats force field dogs. I mean at this point in the theater, I'm, I'm losing my mind because they're getting all the details right sure. and it's all – a uh, really nice uh, callbacks, um, but it also is, as you said, it's a, it's a pretty thrilling, epic action sequence.
0: Yeah, and it's worth noting you you mentioned this there that as much as I think Toy Story three is the film with the most overtly religious overtones, that this whole theme we've been talking about, this whole concept played out throughout these films, this existential crisis, you see it initially in buzz and i think that it's something that josh actually in his book movies are prayers writes about he focuses on toy story and that moment when buzz finally accepts his position in the world he understands what he really is and how he should be used and how that is counter to everything up to that point he has believed about himself and it does completely mirror what we see play out with forky right at the very beginning of Toy Story 4 and, and the other characters throughout the series in different ways. But really, I think there's a mirroring in those characters where they know for certain what they are and are determined to exist only in that realm and have to come to the awakening and have to come to terms with know what this is what you really are.
1: Yeah. And a lot of you know children's films are about uh, the sort of idea that you can do anything if you put your mind to it. And the Pixar films, I think uh, at whole, but specifically, especially within this uh, franchise, these four films are about people kind of learning to embrace their limitations. You know, it's characters learning to accept who they actually are rather than they uh, who they would like to be. Uh, Which which is pretty unusual territory for uh, animated films. You know, I also feel like there's such a seismic cultural change between 1999 and 2010 when Toy Story 3 comes out that to some degree I remember seeing uh, three in the theater and, and with this big action sequence thinking, oh, Pixar kind of has to argue to a new generation of kids why toys are important. Because by the time Toy Story 3 comes out, and even more so Toy Story 4 comes out, I don't know that toys have the same cultural relationship to children.
0: No, you're absolutely right. In a,
1: in a very digital world, yes. you know? Yes, Um, So I feel like they needed a sequence that wasn't just a kid wagging dolls around his floor, but a sequence that made it seem like the most exciting Western adventure in the world to sell you on mm. why this matters.
0: So you're saying my number two pick is Pandering. To the younger crowd
1: no 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 it's it's a it's a bridge you're <laughs> yes. building
0: a bridge between generations there you go okay so we've shared eight pretty fantastic scenes from this series but we have two more to go you're number one
1: uh, yeah. So you gave me your list, uh, what you were thinking about. And your number one is, you know, I think what most people would jump to as the obvious moment. And I probably would have picked it if you hadn't. But this one is right up there for me. And it's the moment that really, I mean, crystallizes the whole thing for me. And it's when uh, Buzz and Woody uh, finally fly uh, at the end of Toy Story one. Yeah. Um, it, It's sort of this beautiful payoff to this incredible extended action sequence. Um, That is sort of the best um, sort of example of the Toy Story movie's Rube Goldberg plotting, where you put all these elements in play and nothing is without meaning. Everything pays off at some later point and the chain of actions and missed opportunities and lucky breaks, everything just barely happens. Um, So even down to, you know, Sid placing the, the match in Woody's holster uh, so he has it there when they need to light the rocket but then of course it goes out so they have to call back the uh, the use of the refraction of the sunlight in Buzz's helmet which he only learned because he was tortured by Sid the magnifying glass mm-hmm. I mean all these things are so perfectly set up to this sort of a moment that is you know I think what the the Toy Story films exemplify is this sort of uh, belief in storytelling that the ending, what you want to be driving towards is the thing that uh, feels uh, surprising but inevitable. It has not been foreshadowed so heavy-handedly that you it, it's a matter of uh, sort of formality to get to that ending. But when it happens, you realize, of course, that's the only thing that could have happened. Everything's been building to this as the only outcome. Right. Um, so this final payoff moment where they're able to somehow get up into the sky, drop RC into the truck, and land into uh, Andy's car and save the day, and everything works out perfectly, uh, you know, it crescendos with this beautiful moment of catharsis where Buzz, and this is another echoing thing, at the beginning of the film you have Buzz adamant that he can fly, uh, which what he knows is not true. And somehow through literal blind luck, I mean, he closes his eyes and happens to do everything right so that he believes and it appears to all the other toys in the room that he is flying, which Woody says, no, that's falling with style. Then there's the second scene in the movie, which you invoked, the uh, I will go sailing no more when Buzz tries to fly the Josh Larson memorial scene. uh, And it has to accept his limitations, that he cannot, that he is broken, that he is a toy, that he doesn't have any power. And the third and final moment is when he knows he's a toy, but he realizes what he can do as a toy. Uh, And uh, yeah, I mean, the beautiful sort of like. Uh, it's the final Rube Goldberg payoff of the wings releasing the rocket yeah. and them continuing to soar. And Woody saying, oh, my God, Buzz, you're flying. And Buzz saying, this isn't flying. It's falling with style. Uh-huh. It's a beautiful callback. It and it's it's a funny line. But it also is. It's kind of the completion of Buzz's arc where once again, he has learned to embrace what he is, you know, he is able to save the day because he knows that he is a toy, uh, that he can pull this off, not because he's magical, but because the aerodynamics of it makes sense. Yeah,
0: yeah, I love it. And you, you raise such a good point about how these films are so carefully plotted, and structured and meticulous in kind of just the basics of the storytelling. And yet you still get caught by surprise with moments like that they're they're set up perfectly and we get some of the bookends different things we've talked about those payoffs and yet somehow with these films you don't really see them coming
1: right i mean what you were talking about with the the train sequence at the beginning of three the exact same thing happens with the video game sequence at the beginning of two where when they're in the air ducts trying to get to Alice's Apartment, every single beat from the opening of the video game sequence happens mm. again. You know what all the outcomes are going to yep. be. You yep. know when they're going to fall, when they're going to succeed, and when Zerg's going to show up. Uh, but it, but it's, it's surprising but inevitable.
0: Yes, that's it. Well, speaking of <laughs> inevitable – My number (laughs) one. Right. It's what you said was obvious. And sometimes here with the top fives, I try to eschew the obvious, but I feel like other times you really need to embrace it. And this is one of those times. Toy Story 2, When She Loved Me. Now, you said that that sequence, the incinerator, just makes you break down and you can barely (laughs) finish it. I would at least still throw out there to people whether or not there is truly an equivalent scene or sequence emotionally in the entire series the ending the very ending of toy story three with andy and bonnie for me probably comes the closest and also the incinerator and that that kind of moment of resigning themselves but this still eclipses those and i really can't think of anything in the series prior you know again we were through one and a half films at this point but i can't think of a moment or a montage that would have really set us up for just how devastating the sequence is i mean before i say more is there anything like it you can think of
1: no no i think this is the moment the the series clicks onto another level because they're sort of Finally addressing the elephant in the room, which is that kids grow up, something that is totally avoided in the first one and is the fundamental tragedy of these creatures' lives. Yes. And to have it done in this very sort of restrained, wordless sequence, to have the whole movie sort of stop and the entire rhythm of the film to change – in order to give you the uh, the backstory to this character, it's another backstory that's you know surprising but inevitable. Yes, you and assume that that Jesse had to have had an owner at some trauma. But having yeah. to watch it uh, really makes it impossible not to root for this character and connect with her and feel for her and uh, and and to cry. Yeah, and what you just articulated about what this sequence does and what
0: two does that one doesn't—that for me is why, as good as Toy Story One is, I. Don't understand why anyone would rate it just ahead of two on their list that's the the complexity and those kind of layers that i spoke to earlier this is of course the randy newman song but sarah mclaughlin singing and really telling us through the lyrics and through the visuals on screen jesse's backstory when somebody loved me everything was beautiful Every hour we spent together lives within my heart. And when she was sad. And I again, this beautiful yellow sun, the imagery coming through the windows of this memory, this nostalgic glow. And that great shot we get of the horse wallpaper, all these horses kind of thundering along. And we get Emily's hand uh, that's just coming up into the frame and moving Jessie along as she's galloping with them. And then as she comes back across the screen, one of these great, just little subtle Pixar visual moments, her movement becomes a wipe that takes us to the next scene where now it's no longer daytime, but it's at night and they're playing together under the covers and the whole way through this scene, they use point of view and the way they, allied time is so fascinating because we see when she falls behind the bed and she kind of crawls out under the bed to see what Emily's doing and only from her point of view do we see that Emily's doing her nails I think with a friend and then the next shot is one from Jesse's point of view of the dresser and the horses we see change into makeup and she turns her head once more and now another point of view shot and instead of more horse Items And Jesse, it's a record player and it's these other grown up objects as if this whole transition of the nails and the makeup and the record player all just kind of happened within seconds, which to Jesse, it probably felt that way. And then seeing Emily again on the telephone and it's only her arm and the phone from Jesse's perspective under the bed. As I've said, these point of view shots are so prevalent in the series, but it just aligns us with these toys so that we're always understanding the distance at play. Sometimes that's physical distance. Here it's mostly emotional distance. And that moment then when we see the junk collecting under the bed and it seems like Jesse's just going to be forgotten forever. And This glorious moment of Emily reconsidering and taking her to the same spot they used to play in. You're just set up for a happy ending here. You're hoping it's going to be, but she just drops her off and just sets her in a box to go. And two more great shots. Another point of view shot, looking out the hole. Jesse, her perspective, looking out the hole as the car drives away. And then they cut to showing the box from the front pulling backwards as if from the point of view of the car again it's kind of giving us this this sense of distance pulling away and i think this whole sequence too gets back to the idea of empathy we've talked about it a lot it's so central and important to this entire series this is the moment where we through kind of woody's eyes almost you know by by taking in this story we see exactly what jesse went through and the change of heart that he has about staying i mean that whole the third act, really, of Toy Story 2 is driven by this sequence working the way it does, and it absolutely does work. It's just so devastating and yet beautiful to watch. And somehow, the song, which is incredible in its own right, lost to You'll Be In My Heart from Tarzan. Yeah. At the Oscars.
1: I mean, uh, a historic mistake in the Academy Awards uh, up there with Green Book winning best picture. But um, I I do think, uh, you know, a beautiful thing at the end of that moment is that Jesse also for the first time expresses empathy for Woody. Because she's always been so dismissive anytime he brings up Andy. And it always feels like in kind of a bratty way. Uh, But she's really showing her hand, which is I totally get it uh, I just have been through the other end of this and you don't know what's about to happen. Yes. And that this is inevitable and it's unavoidable. And, and that's the moment I think the whole franchise drops into another level, you know, with them having to ab- embrace the inevitability of their meaningless, mm-hmm. uh, their meaninglessness rather. Um, I, I love that so much of the story of Emily's, uh, uh growth, uh, you only see her feet,, yep. or you're seeing which other objects are joining Jesse under the bed, which yep. phases are, are moving past. Um, you really only see her hands and her feet for most of this uh, this number. And there's the beautiful shot when she's got Jesse sitting next to her in the car while they're driving. And Jesse totally believes that she's about to be played with on the same hill with the tire swing. Yes. And uh, Jesse, I guess because Emily isn't looking at her, feels free to drop out of statue mode. And just sort of take a breath and sort of lean her head against her and just enjoy the moment. Yeah.
0: And it reminded me of a moment in Toy Story 4, right, where where Woody finally gets embraced by Bonnie on the bed yes. by accident. And we see yeah. a similar reaction.
1: Yeah, where they need that affection so badly. I mean, I think it is objectively the best moment. And I I, uh, I I congratulate you on getting the opportunity to place it as your number one. See, that's really why I shared my
0: picks with you. I just wanted to stake my claim first. Now you know my totally my secrets. You have squatters' <laughs> so, rights. It's squatters' sure. rights, right? Yeah. Home yeah. home court advantage, as it were, here exactly. on film spotting. But I like for once being told that I'm objectively right about something. That's something I would never <laughs> hear ever from Josh, and probably never will. So uh, on I'll that say note, it again: you won the top five this week, Adam. <laughs> Beautiful. Those are our top five Toy Story scenes. We have covered a lot of ground over this show. We've touched on not only these 10 choices that made our list, but snuck in a lot of others here and there. So did we leave anything out? Is there something else that you just got to get to as an honorable mention?
1: Um, I, you know, I was saying there was another moment in Toy Story 2 that uh, is sort of detail obsessed, which is the reveal of all the merchandise from Woody's Roundup which is another uh, kind of beautiful piece of visual storytelling sure. where you understand the entire history of this character, the arc of his cultural, uh, prominence as a, you know, a, a children's television figure. And I think, uh, once again, that picture eye for detail, every single item is so deliberately rendered where you understand, okay, this is kind of a chintzier product. This is a higher end thing. This came in a cereal box. This was bought at a store. Um, it's all sort of well done. Um, the other two Buzz flying moments, which I mentioned, are right up there. Um, and uh, yeah, and then we talked about the moment where where Woody and uh, Bo are reunited in four and the montage of Forky trying to throw himself out over and over again. And Four. my other famous uh, favorite yeah. moments in that film.
0: Yeah, for sure. You know, you bring up Buzz and Woody again, and it makes me think about one of the things I did love about the series really stuck out to me on rewatch is the way they mirror each other. Right Their mm-hmm. trajectories really mirror each other, especially through those first two films and you see it in that sequence you just mentioned the the look back or the revelation that woody is this this old toy and that he was super famous and we had all these other elements to the show and so because in some ways, Buzz has always been kind of this ego driven character right and Woody mm-hmm. never has, and yet in that moment he kind of succumbs to the rush of being this well loved character. Right. And I I feel like that's that's absolutely why he one of the reasons why he's initially like, okay, maybe I'll go along because he kind of gets his ego stroked a little bit in the same way that we recognize in Buzz.
1: There's the great moment where he's going through all the merchandise and testing it out and bragging about all of it. And it's sort of this victory lap for a character who hasn't felt cool in so long. That's it. Um, And it's beautiful because he does need to be humbled by by hearing uh, Jesse's story. Absolutely. Well, that top five and really
0: this whole show, Griffin, was about as much fun as watching a Toy Story movie, for me anyway. I don't know if you would
1: say that because no, of I mean, how much you love these films. No, I mean nothing close to right? watching a Toy Story film for me, but, <laughs> but I had a
0: great time. No, that really was fun, and I thought your picks were just exactly what I expected them to be, surprising but inevitable in some cases, wow. Griffin. So thank you for your insights there, and I'd love for you to share a little bit more about where our listeners can find you.
1: Yeah, Blank Check, wherever uh, podcasts are found, we're doing Michael Mann, as you said, and then I believe at the end of next month, July, we start doing our series on Hayao Miyazaki, uh, who who always has been kind of a cinematic blind spot for me. Okay. for such a big animation fan uh, and for how uh, reverential Pixar are to Studio Ghibli, I had seen very few of them. And so it's been fun to sort of uh, – we started recording those now and uh, discovering those films for the first time. They are unsurprisingly very good. Very There's a good. reason why everyone yeah. likes them. Yeah, and then I'm on uh, Twitter as Griff Lightning. It's like a Grease Lightning except with the first half of my name. And The Tick is still streaming on Amazon. Uh, Hopefully they don't ever take it down. Uh, 22 episodes. Uh, Wish there were more, but I'm very proud of everything that we got to make. Well, that is our show. In the show
0: archives, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back all the way to 2005. Also at our website, you can vote in the current film spotting poll. What is the best film of 2019 so far? You can find us on social media, Facebook and Twitter. I'm at Film spotting. Josh is at Larson on film. You heard Griffin at Griff Lightning. In wide release this weekend, we have Luke Besson's Anna. Any any thoughts? Have you paid any attention to this film coming out whatsoever, Griffin?
1: I have a little bit of like a deja vu every time I see a trailer for Anna come on. It feels like, uh, you know, the the cat reappearing in The Matrix. I keep going like, hasn't he already made this one? Right. Um, it's another uh, model who's really good at guns uh, <laughs> surrounded by overqualified uh, older character actors. Yes. Uh, yeah, so I haven't seen it, but I feel like I've already seen it four times.
0: Well, and speaking of children's play things, we have Child's Play coming out. Yes, the, the yes. The remake, the reboot, I don't the reheat, as Josh likes to call him If you want to see what Chucky is up to, you can check out Child's Play. And finally, Toy Story 4 is out, strongly recommended by both. Griffin and myself next week on the show we will share our top five films of 2019 so far our show is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren without Sam and Golden Joe this show wouldn't go our production assistant is Andy Mitchell we always like to thank Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the film spotting advisory board and give special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago more information is available at WBEZ.org and Griffin you should give a shout out to the production on your end your Producer Ben helping out as well.
1: Yeah, producer Ben Hosley here in the house. He has uh, eight thousand nicknames that we recite in most episodes. I won't do most of them now, but I'll say he's the producer and he's the Ben doer. Uh, <laughs> and we're here at uh, Audio Boom, which is our uh, our network for well, blank check.
0: Yeah, thank you, Ben, and again, thank you, Griffin. We hope to do this again sometime.
1: My pleasure. It was a real uh, privilege, and I'd be happy to come back again anytime. Although I hope it isn't for Toy Story Five. Uh, yeah, I'm with uh, you there. <laughs> They let this one lie now. Yeah. For Phil Spotting, I'm Adam Kempinar.
0: Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Now, so I've missed it, it, though. The Forky, you guys have just, this is off air here, but you and David just like, was this an argument between you two?
1: at all? Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Da- David thought the movie board. was going to be a hollow cash grab and that Forky seemed like a nightmare. Okay. Uh, and and we've just been fighting over this for like 10 months. Got it. Um, <laughs> and so it escalated to a point where he started doing a bit on the podcast where he would accuse uh, Forky of uh, humanity's greatest tragedies. <laughs> he would imply that Forky was on the grassy knoll oh, and man. that he was I'm a criminal so so and
0: behind.
1: all these sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, but then we went to this, we, I got into the, the screening that he was at and it, it literally the first second Forky was on screen, he just kind of turned to me and was like, I mean, yeah, like the, <laughs> the guard came down immediately. I mean, yeah, he, I love he it. He was won over instantaneously. Oh, yeah.
0: The the power of Forky. Indeed.
1: Right. So the bit has now shifted to I said, David, you can make whatever jokes you want about Forky. But if you like Forky, when you see the movie, you have to marry him. So now the bit is that we're planning his wedding. <laughs> You're planning to- the, the wedding. Yeah. Oh, that's so yeah. great. They're going to have a very romantic wedding. I love it. <laughs>